All right, welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Elias Ayala, and today I'm super duper excited because I have uh, Guillaume Bignon, which took me a while to properly pronounce his name, and perhaps he can just give me a thumbs up if I got it. Two. All right, two. good. Very good, very good. Um, and so we're going to be talking about a uh, interesting topic where um, I kind of uh, promoted it as kind of uh, Guillaume, who is a French Calvinist, and I call him French Calvinist because you're going to notice he's French just by when he opens his mouth. Um, uh, but he's also a philosopher, right? And um, he's going to be interacting with uh, three friends, actually, um, but have a completely different perspective. We'll talk a little bit about them in just a few uh, moments. But by way of announcements, um, I am going to be having a, a couple of uh, in good interviews coming up um, that will be covering a wide variety of topics, um, most of which will relate to apologetics, but that's my primary focus in uh, with Revealed Apologetics, and so I'm looking forward to that. I just received a text not that long ago. I know a lot of people enjoyed the uh, the episode that I had with Chris Bolt on the topic of presuppositionalism, and so I will be having him on at a future date. Um, hopefully, we can lock that in. Um, I'm still, I'm still, I'm still fighting for Dr. James Anderson uh, from Reformed Theological Seminary to talk about the nature of transcendental arguments. So, so that should be fun as well. And so, uh, there's a, a lot of good things coming up in the near future. Um, also, if you um, have someone, a scholar, or an apologist, a philosopher that you'd like me to have on the Revealed Apologetics show, please email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com, and um, I will reach out to those folks and and. Hopefully, I can provide for the listeners what they want to uh, hear so that it can be educational, informative, edifying, and um, just works towards equipping us uh, to think better uh, as Christians, loving the Lord our God with all of our mind. I'm in a super good mood, uh, not just because of the guests that I have today, but I was just telling our guests that um, because of this whole quarantine lock-in thing, I have actually convinced my wife to watch the Star Wars movies from beginning to end. So we just finished the uh, the prequels, episodes one through three. And this is, this is pra praise God, praise God, because if anyone knows my wife, uh, she does not like those type of movies. So um, I am very, very excited um, that, sh that we made it through those first three uh, films. All right, well, that aside, let's, let's jump right in. I have with me uh, today, Guillaume Bignon. Um, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and, uh, and then we'll take it from there. Um, hey, hi, Eli. Thanks for having me. Uh, about myself, well, I guess my accent already betrayed that I'm French. You've already called me out on it, which is a really mean thing to say. I would never call <laughs> you French. Um, so I'm, uh, I guess I'm a Calvinist. That's going to be the topic of the uh, interview. Um, I'm, uh, I guess, a philosophical theologian uh, or a theological philosopher, whichever way you want to uh, prime it. Um, so I think that just philosophy is thinking very hard about things and you don't you do that about god and that's a theologian so philosophy and theology coming together um during the day i work on wall street i live uh, in the new york city area so i'm a director in the corporate and investment uh, bank um and uh, at night and i guess on the weekends i'm a philosopher and think about those, those issues so <laughs> i'm also a father of uh, four young kids and so you're not foreign to that situation with the whole lockdown on the outbreak it's uh, quite a lot of fun to have all these kids running around so, so basically you work you work on wall street and you have a really boring day job but at night you are a calvinist superhero fighting 
fighting crime of libertarianism and uh, all the different kinds of uh, Molinist running around and Arminians running around. So that's basically what you do, right? That's right. I, I don't think I don't know if libertarianism is a crime, uh, maybe a felony. <laughs> I don't know. We, we need we need to look at the law for that. All right. All right. Well, we'll we'll, we'll look into that later on. Maybe a topic for another another episode. Well, uh, okay. So all, all joking aside, now we're we're going to be covering uh, three individuals, and I, I would say that that they are uh, mutual friends of mine. Um, I've had uh, Tim Stratton of Free Thinking Ministries on my show um, a few episodes back to talk about Molinism. Um, and of course, uh, Guillaume knows much about Molinism. He, I remember he said it in a particular context that Molinism is his favorite of the false views. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and you know what? I, I have to be honest, out of all the false views out there, it is my favorite as well. Um, and uh, so we'll, we'll be taking a look at Tim Stratton from Free Thinking Ministries, who's a great guy, um, very sharp guy. And um, we're going to be taking a look at Braxton Hunter from Trinity Radio. And we're going to take a look at some of his arguments against Calvinism. And of course, uh, the infamous Leighton Flowers. I, he knows I love him. Uh, but we'll be looking at Leighton Flowers as well. So we have a lot to cover in this in this uh, show tonight. And um, I'm, I, I actually, I usually don't drink coffee this late, but I'm I drank coffee, so I'm ready. If you're ready, I'm ready. And I'm sure the people listening are, are going to enjoy the content, whether they agree or disagree. All that to say, this is done in brotherly love. Uh, we are not the sorts of Calvinists that, uh, you know, resign non-Calvinists to the pits of, of hell, of course, right? Where this is a, an in-house discussion, but an important one. And I think Guillaume would agree with that. So we're going to um, uh, begin now. So let's start with with uh, Tim Stratton, okay? I've spoken with, with Tim and he says that he's interacted uh, with, with your work. And um, are you familiar with uh, the work that he's put out in response to you and his Free Thinking Ministries uh, website? Uh, so I've met Tim uh, very briefly a couple of times uh, at the uh, annual meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society and Evangelical Philosophical Society. Um, so friendly guy, uh, I have not, uh, read extensively uh, his material. I do know that he had put out some material against my book uh, after it came out. Uh, so we can focus on that for the arguments uh, of the evening, but that's just about the uh, extent of my uh, engagement with him. Um, but yeah, friendly okay. guy. And, um, yeah, very friendly guy. Definitely the kind of guy you want to just like chill out and watch a movie with or, you know, mm -hmm. grab something to eat or something. Very, very nice guy. Um, but okay, so let, let's jump in. So, so the overall topics that we're going to be covering as you interact with Tim, with Braxton, and with Leighton are the topics of free will, moral responsibility, issues of determinism, issues of incompatibilism, compatibilism, and libertarianism. Now, we're using these terms under the assumption that the majority of people who are going to be listening to this are somewhat familiar with these debates. But if we can just quickly define those concepts for us, and then we'll start interacting with... Uh, with Tim Stratton's uh, work um, that kind of makes comments on on his perspective of your work. Yes, okay, so a few words on the uh, preliminaries, let's say, to understand those concepts. Uh, so free will, uh, as is normally understood in the philosophical literature, is the uh, control condition for moral responsibility. So it's a bit of a mouthful, uh, but let's start then with moral responsibility, and that will help us understand what free will is. So moral responsibility is um, what you have when you are suitable for praise or blame. So if when you make choices, you, you do actions, uh, you, you choose to do something, uh, that action may be praiseworthy or blameworthy. Uh, and you, in order to be praised or blamed, 
uh, that is in order to be morally responsible you need to be properly in control of what you're doing and so that element of you controlling the decision to engage in those actions is what we call free will. It's the mm -hmm. control condition for moral responsibility. Now, um, an, an interesting way of contrasting it is simply to realize that for you to be morally responsible, that is for you to be praiseworthy or blameworthy for what you do, um, you need to satisfy the control condition, the free will condition. But there's also additional uh, conditions that, have, that don't have to do with how you control your decision, but more uh, with what you know. So there are epistemic conditions for moral responsibility. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, you can freely choose to do something, but if you if you lack some very important pieces of information about your action that you're carrying out, uh, you may be excused for something that if you had known, you would be blameworthy. So let's imagine that I'm pouring some sugar uh, in my wife's coffee, but unbeknownst to me, the jar has been replaced with poison. Um, I'm doing the action freely, so I control what I'm doing, so I have free will, I satisfy the control conditions, but I am not aware of very important facts about the matter, and therefore I would not be blameworthy because I just didn't know it was poison. So there's epistemic conditions for moral responsibility and control condition, and the control condition is what we say is free will. If you have free will, if you act freely, then it's uh, necessary for, to be morally responsible. Mm -hmm. And okay, so that's free will, moral responsibility, determinism. This is thrown out a, a lot in okay. the discussions, yes. different kinds of determinism, but just basically what is determinism and um, how are we using it within this with this particular context? Yes, so determinism is the question, it's one of the questions that's at the heart of the uh, debate between Calvinists and non-Calvinists. Mm -hmm. um, determinism is uh, the view that uh, everything that happens including our choices, because that's the area on which we're interested uh, tonight. Uh, everything that happens is necessitated by prior facts. So uh, everything that happens in this world, everything that we do and choose in the area of, uh, of human choices is determined by antecedent factors, by prior facts about ourselves. So the way that the world is, um, when, you know, let's focus on choices again, uh, when I'm about to make a choice, um, the determinist view is going to say that the outcome of my choice is determined, it's necessitated by all the facts about my own makeup, my uh, upbringing, uh, the conditions in which I'm placed, you know, my uh, thoughts and desires, inclinations on the moment of choice, all of those taken together and obviously on a Christian view that also includes God's providential activity in my heart, mm -hmm. his own drawing of my own uh, volition, all of that put together determines the outcome of my choice. Okay. So that's so, determinism. Yeah. Okay, so free will, moral responsibility, determinism. Now, just to clarify, the, the debate between the Calvinist and the non-Calvinist is not that one affirms free will and another denies it. Rather, we have different understandings of free will. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's why it's important to define free will in the way that I've just done, which is the completely standard way of defining free will in the literature. It's agnostic mm -hmm. as to whether or not that is compatible with determinism. And so this is where we enter into those concepts of incompatibilism and compatibilism, which are very simply the views that free will and moral responsibility, as I've defined them, mm -hmm. are either compatible or incompatible with determinism. 
Okay, so you just defined there for incompatibilism and compatibilism, all right? That's right. So incompatibilists are going to say that if you're determined, then you cannot be morally responsible. You cannot have free will. And then the compatibilist will simply say, no, 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 you could be determined and still have free will and moral responsibility. So it's a disagreement on not on whether we have free will or not. I think that most Christians will want to say that we are blameworthy or praiseworthy for what we do, that we do have free will in that sense. Mm -hmm. But they will strongly disagree as to whether or not that, namely free will and moral responsibility, is compatible with determinism. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, compatibilism, which is a form of determinism, right? Uh, no, so compatibilism is just the thesis that uh, free will and uh, determinism are compatible. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't actually commit you to saying that you either have free will or that you even are determined, right? So it's just mm -hmm. saying the two could be true together, but mm -hmm. in itself, it doesn't commit you to affirming that in fact, either is true. Now, more often than not, compatibilists tend to uh, affirm that they're compatible because they happen to be true. And so if both of them are, are true, then obviously both of them are compatible. But technically, compatibilism isn't the thesis that they are in fact true. It's just a thesis that they're compatible. All right. Now, can you um, define for us the difference between um, determinism mm -hmm. and soft determinism Yes. and, and libertarianism? And soft libertarianism, because that's going to come. That's going to become an issue later on when you interact with particular versions of libertarianism as they come um, within the context of Tim's work and, and others. Yes. Okay. So uh, determinism is simply the view that, as I described it, everything is determined. Everything is necessitated by prior antecedent factors. What is called soft determinism is simply the combination of determinism plus compatibilism. So. It's a soft determinist is someone who says we are determined. So it's affirming determinism mm -hmm. and also compatibilism is true. Therefore, we could have free will, even though we are determined. And so soft determinism is the combination of compatibilism and determinism. And that is really what I take to be the standard Calvinist view. That is, that is the affirmation that uh, overall we are determined to do everything that we do, uh, but we are still morally responsible. So we affirm compatibilism and determinism. That's soft determinism. All right, very good. So we have, good. did you want to you have another thought there? No, 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 well, you also asked about libertarianism. So oh, yes, that's right. Okay, yeah. yeah, libertarianism and soft libertarianism. Yeah, so libertarianism is the one that we haven't defined yet. Libertarianism is another uh, combination of those two. Uh, so libertarianism is the thesis that incompatibilism is true. And also some of the choices we make are free. So libertarianism is the view that Determinism is incompatible with free will and moral responsibility. And also some of the time we have free will and moral responsibility from which it follows that determinism is false. Okay. So that's the standard definition of libertarianism. Now with respect to soft libertarianism, uh, I don't think it's as widely used in the literature as the expression soft determinism. So I'm not all that certain that I can give you a standard understanding of what it means for libertarianism to be stuffed as opposed to be hard. Okay. Um, that we'll have to see. I don't think it matters for the evaluation of the arguments that we're looking at tonight. But while the soft, hard uh, terminology is clear for determinism, where you can say, well, by the way, it's a good, good contrast to draw. Soft determinists are the ones that are determinists and compatibilists. And that is in opposition to what is called hard determinism, 
-hmm. and that is folks who affirm determinism and incompatibilism. Okay. So there are folks who say we are determined and it is incompatible with moral responsibility and free will. Therefore, we don't have free will. No one is really blameworthy or praiseworthy. Mm. And so that's that's obviously not the view that I affirm. I affirm soft determinism, the one that is compatibilistic. Okay. Now, regardless if 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 people understand what you said or not with the details and all the intricacies about the definitions, because I think definitions are important, everything you said sounds right because of your accent. So you have the advantage automatically, right? Just just saying. I don't know about that either. <laughs> I'm totally kidding. In order to sound smart, I'm told that you need to have a British accent. I know, but in a French accent. When still... you have a French accent, I'm told you sound smug, which is is okay, or maybe <laughs> arrogant. I don't know. All right. Or you could just have, I'm Puerto Rican, but I have no accent. So I'm like a right? weird, yeah. Anyway. I cannot right. see your accent, so. <laughs> so let's jump right into, into the issue here. So Tim wrote an article um, um, kind of critiquing um, uh, some of your, your work. And his article can be found um, on his website, Free Thinking Ministries. And, and I would encourage people, even as a, a people who know a little bit about myself in regards to apologetic methodology, I'm a presuppositionalist. Um, and I'm not a classicalist, but Tim is a classicalist and has great apologetic resources there. So I still find his work very valuable and I encourage people to kind of go there. Um, you'll find all sorts of um, articles that would be helpful for apologetics and things like that. Of course, we have the disagreement here on the issue of Calvinism and determinism and, and how that all hashes out. Um, but I've heard Tim say and others say with regards to your work, Guillaume, that your, uh, your work provides perhaps one of the best defenses of compatibilism. And so, um, the, if anything, that should encourage people who are interested to check out your book, uh, which is "Excusing Sinners and Excusing Sinners and Blaming God" in bookstores near. <laughs> if I could do a little, little advertising now, now it's not a walk in the park sort of read. I mean, you you engage with some pretty uh, uh, you know complicated issues here, and and you deal with um, some philosophical issues that are, that take a little work to kind of plow through. Um, but it is a worthy read. I'm still in the in the middle of reading it at the moment. Um, and, uh, Guillaume, Guillaume shared with me, uh, the other night that when he takes notes, he takes handwritten notes. So, so I tried it and, and I like it, but I don't know if I can plow through a handwritten notes because there's just so much there to write down. I might have to just punk out and start typing, but be that as it may. Okay. Um, so Tim has uh, a lot to say with regards to, to your work, but let's jump into uh, his article that he uh, kind of uh, focuses on, on your, your book here. And he talks about uh, the consequent argument. And if I can give kind of a very brief uh, lay person's uh, presentation of the argument, uh, the consequent argument, it goes something like this, that if determinism is true, then knowledge is impossible. Right, because no, 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 that's that's not the one. So oh, okay, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so the the consequence argument is is not the argument that uh, Tim Stratton actually defends himself. That's so, right. So the that's consequence Peter Van argument, Inwagens, right? That's correct. Yes, okay. yes, yes. So con the consequence argument is one very famous argument in favor of incompatibilism. Okay. And so in my book, I do uh, engage with Peter Van Inwagen's consequence argument because I need to explain what I think is wrong with the argument. Okay. And so. That Tim Stratton has written his blog post, um, and uh, I will explain uh, what the consequence argument is and what, what my response is to the consequence argument. But I first want to point out that that's not even relevant uh, here because Tim Stratton doesn't engage even a little bit with my treatment of the consequence argument. Mm -hmm. um, so here's what you said. I mean, do you want to read the uh, the objection? Yeah, yeah so, I'll read it. And just real quick to differentiate between. Um, 
Tim's argument and Peter Van Inwagen's argument. Peter Van Inwagen's argument, if I'm if I'm correct, is, is an argument against naturalistic determinism, right? Uh, yes, it is. Uh, although it can very easily be modified and hit the uh, theological determinist. So, which is what Tim tries to do. Tim, Tim will. Right. So right. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if Tim has defended the consequence argument because okay. it doesn't really engage with my response in this blog post. But yes, okay. uh, it's very common to use the consequence argument in favor of incompatibilism. I mean, he talks about the laws of nature, but then if you replace that with God's full providential activity, you'll find with the exact same situation where it determines the outcome of your choices. So gotcha. um, the argument definitely... It's, it would not be a good move for the Calvinist to say, well, no, it's not talking about my view. It's not including God. It's just the laws of nature. No, the argument really hits the Calvinist if it's successful. Okay. All right. So let me read a portion of the article, and then um, I'll give you an opportunity to respond to it, okay? Mm -hmm. All right. So here is a, a little chunk from the article. He says, well, I have read my friendly enemy's interaction with the consequent argument. You are the friendly enemy. Uh, to put it bluntly, I am unimpressed. This is because Bignon affirms exhaustive determinism, and I'm convinced that rationality, let alone knowledge, does not exist if all thoughts and beliefs are ultimately causally determined by something external to the person possessing the thoughts and beliefs. In fact, I've argued that a determinist cannot possess knowledge that determinism is true, even if determinism is true. If that is the case, then all that remains for the determinist are question-begging assumptions. What say you? <laughs> okay, so so it's important to understand what's the, uh, the dialectic here. So uh, Peter Van Inwagen offers an argument in favor of incompatibilism. It's called the consequence argument, and we'll get to it in just a moment. Sure. I provide a full response to this argument in my book. And here, what Tim Stratton does is that he says um, there are other reasons to think that determinism is false. Right, so he's just he's, he's diving into his arguments, the one that uh, you need to be able to freely think otherwise, so that you could not have knowledge that determinism is true, even if determinism is true. So that's his argument, but that's not the consequence argument. So what he's saying is that there's other reasons to think determinism is false, but that's not relevant to the merits of my response to the consequence argument. Right. When I explain what's wrong with the consequence argument, the merits of my response have nothing to do with whether incompatibilism is true. Okay. Right? Because you can suppose for a second that uh, incompatibilism is true. It could still be the case that the consequence argument is a bad way of proving it. Mm -hmm. So I could successfully show that the consequence argument uh, doesn't work, even if its conclusion is true. Okay. And so what Stratton does when he um, simply says, well, look, you affirm determinism and there are reasons not to think that it's false, it does positively nothing to explain why my response to the consequence argument is, I quote, unimpressive. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, an easy way to see that is the case is imagine that uh, he he's here now in a different context. Imagine that he's offering his uh, so-called free thinking arguments, the, the one that we've just read, mm -hmm. um, in against determinism. And then I respond that I I respond that I find his argument unimpressive because Tim affirms libertarian free will, and libertarian free will is refuted by Romans nine. Don't you know? So 
that, that would be changing the topic, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not supporting at all why it was okay to be unimpressed by the free thinking argument. Mm -hmm. And the same goes for his response to my treatment of the consequence argument. So this blog post was really odd in that sense is that he claims to be unimpressed by my response to the consequence argument, but he touches none of it. He simply seizes the fact that I affirm determinism, which is quite obviously true, and then says, well, there are other reasons to think that determinism is false, or at least not justified. Mm -hmm. And But that's really missing the point of the argument that I'm offering against the consequence argument. So, okay. so that's... So let's the, look at the, the main let's look consequence. let's look at the consequent the consequent argument itself. What okay. would you what would you uh, how would you respond to that? Okay, so the consequence argument uh, is Peter van Inwagen's claim that if determinism is true, then everything that you choose can be seen as the mere consequences of things that preceded you. And so, if you didn't have the ability to change those things, so the the past, you no more have the ability to change their necessary consequences. So you don't have the ability to do otherwise than you do, okay. right? That's that's the gist. So Van Inwagen offers it in different uh, forms. There's at least three different versions in his essay on free will, uh, but they're all sharing that essential, that, that core of the reasoning is that uh, if you're determined, then you are your choices are the consequences of things that preceded you. You cannot change what preceded you, and therefore you cannot change their consequences either. Uh, namely things that follow necessarily from those. Mm -hmm. So uh, the core of my response to this uh, requires you to understand a very important distinction um, between two, two things that we call uh, the ability to do otherwise, but they're quite different. So there's two ways of unpacking the ability to do otherwise. One is the so-called conditional ability to do otherwise. The other one is the categorical ability to do otherwise. So it's it's very important to get that when you engage in conversations on free will and the, the this claim that you need the ability to do otherwise or to change, you know, to to choose otherwise or to here is the ability. Well, really, in Van Inwagen's word, it's the ability to do otherwise. Um, it's that there's the conditional sense of ability, which says you uh, could do otherwise if you had desired to do otherwise. Okay. So um, it's a, a very mild sense of ability. It's simply saying, if you had wanted, if you had the desires, the inclination to do otherwise than you do, then there's nothing else that would have prevented you from doing it. Okay. Right. So you can imagine we're taking a that's vote. Condi that's conditional. That's right. That's the conditional okay. uh, meaning, uh, the conditional sense of ability to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. It's it's the one that says, if you had wanted to, you could have done otherwise. Uh, there was nothing but your will to to prevent you. So an example of that would be if we're taking a vote and uh, my hands are handcuffed behind my back um, and we're asking me, well, why didn't you raise your hand? Then I can point out that I did not have the conditional ability to do otherwise because uh, even if I wanted to uh, raise my hand, there was the handcuffs preventing me from raising my hand. So I did not have the conditional ability to do otherwise. So that's a fairly mild sense of ability. And then there's a stronger sense of ability to do otherwise, which is the categorical ability to do otherwise. And this one says, you must be able to do otherwise than, than what you in fact do. All things being just as they are at the moment of choice, including everything about you inside and out. Hmm. That is, you're no longer supposing that your desires are different. You're saying like exactly everything, your inclination, your makeup, your character, all the influences working on you at the moment of choice being held just as they are, you could have chosen otherwise. So that's the categorical sense of ability. 
Okay. Okay. And so once you've laid out that there are those two understandings of ability, here is the key piece. The categorical sense of ability, um, if you have that kind of ability, you are indetermined. That is that that sense of ability is incompatible with determinism. And you can okay. see this fairly straightforwardly. Uh, if you are determined, then all things about you at the moment of choice determine the one and only outcome that is possible and that will in fact happen. Mm. So you don't have the ability categorically to choose something else, all things being just as they are. Mm. So the categorical sense of ability is incompatible with determinism. And that is the one that incompatibilists most convince us is necessary for moral responsibility. Okay. Right? So, but so so we'll get to that. So, so, so let, let me finish yeah, just this. So and then the uh, conditional sense of ability, that one, I agree is necessary for moral responsibility. That okay. is that if I don't even have the conditional ability to do otherwise, then I cannot be praised or blamed for doing what I do or failing to do what I uh, failed to do. Mm. So uh, the conditional sense of ability is necessary for free will and moral responsibility. And the categorical sense of ability is incompatible with determinism. So you would say the Calvinist has the conditional ability, not the categorical ability. Right. So yes, and the Calvinist and and that the should. conditional the conditional ability is still provides a foundation for moral responsibility. Yeah. So the the conditional sense of ability is necessary necessary for moral responsibility. Okay. Uh, but it is compatible with determinism. And so okay. that's the key. So you can you can affirm that moral responsibility and free will require the conditional sense of ability. So there mm -hmm. is a sense in which the Calvinist says you need to be able to do otherwise, but it's a milder sense of ability than the one that is actually incompatible with determinism, namely okay. the categorical sense of ability. So you have those two senses, and therefore there's a big fat equivocation in many of the uh, anti-Calvinist arguments because okay. they simply speak of the ability to do otherwise without distinguishing which one is in view. Okay. And my big claim against Van Inwagen and against a lot of the other writers that I engage in my writing is that uh, if they mean uh, the conditional ability to do otherwise, then I don't disagree. I say, yes, it's more it's necessary for more responsibility, but then nothing follows interestingly against Calvinism or determinism. Yeah. And if they mean categorical sense of ability, then they're begging the question. Mm. Because I don't agree that the categorical ability is necessary for more responsibility, and therefore we need an independent argument for that. Ah, oh, I see. Okay. And, and that's so that's my be... response to the consequence argument. All right. And that's why it's important to be, uh, is to define our terms and to use those terms consistently. In these debates, people talk about free. It's kind of like the, you know, when people say, uh, you know, Calvinists will sometimes say, you know, we believe in the sovereignty of God as though non-Calvinists reject the sovereignty of God. And both, yeah. both parties understand we believe in the sovereignty of God, but there's different understandings. Same thing with, with free will, ability, and things like that. I think that's very, very important to, to keep in mind. Um, yes. But, but uh, Tim goes on. He, he says, it's too bad that Binyong did not conduct the Google search or talk to our mutual friends, which we share many, who are aware of the arguments I've advanced supporting the incompatibilist thesis. These arguments are offered in abundance on freethinkingministries.com. Don't you know about that website, Kiyom? What's wrong with you? To be fair, although two of these arguments are being published in theological journals later this year, he did not have access to these arguments in published literature before writing his book. 
As noted above, I will address these arguments soon, but since they do exist, Binyong must account for them and interact with them before jumping to conclusions. That is to say that the burden of proof has been shifted to his shoulders. So don't you use the internet, Guillaume. Don't you, don't you look up websites first before you do something foolish like publish a book on the topic of uh, Calvinism and, and determinism? What's wrong with you, man? Yeah, it, it's a little bit funny. So it, it's actually all in response to one sentence that he took out of context in my book. And the okay. sentence goes like this. It says, the burden of proof is still firmly on the shoulders of the incompatibilists. And we are still looking for an argument to support the incompatibilist thesis. So mm -hmm. this is something I said uh, in response to the um, consequence argument, precisely because of what I've just explained, that there are those two senses of, ab of ability and that people are claiming, so as the... Uh, conclusion of the consequence argument does it's claiming well if determinism is true you don't have the ability to choose otherwise boom determinism should not be affirmed because you don't have the ability to do otherwise you cannot be morally responsible so in my explanation of this equivocation on the sense of ability I then explain, look, once we've understood that there are those two senses, it doesn't suffice for the incompatibilist to tell us that moral responsibility requires the ability to do otherwise. It's still begging the question if they mean the categorical sense of ability, mm. and if they only mean the conditional sense of ability, then it's compatible with determinism. So it leads nowhere. And so that's why that's where I say we still need an argument. They still have the burden of proof of for the incompatibilist thesis. Now mm. Tim Stratton says I should have Googled him so that I would have known, learned that there are arguments for incompatibilism. Uh, that's funny. Uh, of course, I know there are arguments for incompatibilism. I wrote a full book responding to the best of them. I mean, he's presumably holding the book. I suppose he's read it. Uh, I deal with the consequence arguments, the pets and puppets arguments, the coercion arguments, multiple versions of the manipulation arguments, the principle of alternate possibilities, the direct argument for incompatibilism. All of those are responded to in my book. So I'm aware that there are arguments for incompatibilism, and I don't think I needed to Google Tim Stratton to learn that. Um, but the uh, the affirmation that I'm making here when I say that we still need an argument, the, the burden of proof is still on them, um, is, is something you, you can see in many of the incompatibilist write, uh, writers. They are going to be finding the this claim that more responsibility requires the ability to do otherwise it's called the principle of alternate possibilities mm -hmm. they find it so convincing because i think the conditional sense of ability is hiding right there and so it is true and they affirm that but then they slide over to affirm the the, the categorical sense of ability mm -hmm. um, but they find it so plausible that sometimes they just leave it out there as if that's it that's the the debate is done and mm. um they find it obvious and they don't support it so that's what i'm calling out but uh, you, you can take a very famous example that i point out in my book uh, jerry walls who is a libertarian a very uh, let's say vocal critic of calvinism <laughs> uh and uh and and he affirms that principle of alternate possibility as a mm. properly basic belief that cannot be supported by arguments. Mm -hmm. uh, Would you like me to read the quote yeah, there? Yeah, yeah sure, sure. Yeah. The, the quote by Jerry Walls. Okay, this is this is Jerry Walls. He says, quote, we believe that libertarian free will is intrinsic to the very notion of moral responsibility. That is, a person cannot be held morally responsible for an act unless he or she was free to perform that act and free to refrain from it. 
This is a basic moral intuition, and we do not believe there are any relevant moral convictions more basic than this one that could serve as premises to prove it. Yes. So that's the type of claim that I uh, address here. And I say, no, it's not obvious. It's not true. And if you need me to buy it, I will need an argument, not just an affirmation. And until there's a further argument to support the principle of alternate possibilities, then the burden of proof is still on the incompatibilist. Mm -hmm. So in my refutation of the consequence argument, I say that the consequence argument is successful in showing, and so this is something that uh, Tim Stratton then quotes, uh, it, it's successful in showing what I happily concede, namely that libertarian free will, the categorical ability to do otherwise, is incompatible with determinism, but falls short of refuting compatibilism. Mm. So, well, let's, well, let's take a look at his quote here uh, where he, he makes that, that reference here. He says, this claim is quite significant. In fact, I believe it is a game changer since Bignon affirms that determinism and libertarian free will are logically incompatible and mutually exclusive concepts. Then it follows that if one of these concepts is true, then the other is necessarily false. Since Bignon affirms compatibilism, he also affirms that divine determinism is true and that nothing is undetermined by God. And yet, Somehow, we are still responsible. Be that as it may, since his view of compatibilism entails determinism, and since determinism is logically incompatible with libertarian free will, which Binyong affirms, now all one must do is provide just one argument deductively concluding that humans possess at least soft libertarian free will, or that God does not always causally determine all things about humanity. If just one argument passes, then determinism, and thus compatibilism, must be false. How would you respond to that? So I think the uh, philosophical term is uh, LOL, L-O-L. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, I mean, I, I affirm that liberty and free will is incompatible with determinism. And he says that's a game changer. Uh, no, it's not. That's baked in the definition. So all I'm doing here is affirming something that's definitional. And he says, oh, I mean, I, I'm flattered in a sense that when I'm so uh, influential in the field of philosophy that <laughs> when I affirm a definition, it's a game changer for everybody. Okay. I wish, uh, but no, it's really the, just the beginning of the conversation here. Okay. So again, we've seen why his response is misguided. He thinks he's got a good argument against determinism, you know, the other argument that he's offering, the free thinking argument. So my affirmation of determinism is seen as the end of the debate when it really should be the beginning here. Mm -hmm. So that leads him to leave aside my response entirely to the consequence argument, and he offers his arguments for incompatibilism. So, mm. okay, so I'm saying, let's look at them. They were not really the topic of either the consequence argument or my response, but now he's using them to say, like, this is what's going to really do undo his view. So let's have a look. So he's going to present his free-thinking argument and right. his, uh, his omni argument, right? Yes. Okay, so let's take a look at the free-thinking argument. I have the premises here. Mm -hmm. um, premise one, if humans do not possess libertarian free will, then humans do not possess the ability to gain knowledge via the process of rationality. Premise two, humans do possess the ability to gain knowledge via the process of rationality. Therefore, three, humans possess libertarian free will. Right. So it's an argument that I've, I've seen him offer a couple of times. Um, and there's let me make a few comments in response to that. So mm -hmm. um, first, uh, I want to point out that even if the argument, even if it's successful, it's not an argument for incompatibilism. It's an argument for indeterminism. 
And not even that, it's actually an argument against the rationality of affirming determinism. Okay. So by, by its own admission, the argument doesn't claim to tell you that determinism is false. It's, uh, it aims to show you that even if it's true, it wouldn't be reasonable to believe it. Hmm. So at, at most, it's an argument against determinism, but it's not an argument for incompatibilism. Okay. Uh, so even, even if successful, it doesn't get you to incompatibilism. Um, the second thing I just want to point out in passing, it's not so much a refutation, but I, I, I think it's a comment that ought to be made. It's a bit odd that Tim Stratton claims the argument as, as his, because uh, he plainly enough did not invent the argument. I mean, it can be found in multiple sources that precede him. Uh, to just say in American apologetic writings, it's at least in print by William Lane Craig or Greg Kukul that he quotes both of them in the uh, in the article. Um, it was discussed by uh, Richard Swinburne in 1997. Uh, Swinburne says that you can find it in uh, JBS Haldane in 1930s. So I think Tim Stratton was pretty young in the 1930s. Uh, I was too young to remember whether the argument was already on freethinkingministries.com at the time. But clearly the argument is been offered before. Um, so I, I'm a little bit um, uncomfortable saying, well, this is the free thinking argument by Tim Stratton. I think this is just a common claim that determinism somehow is not reasonable to believe because your your beliefs are improperly determined. Mm. Um, but let's, let's, uh, let's grant him that at least he's got his own formulation of the premises maybe that's you know let's, that's his version of the argument. So let's let's deal with it. Well what's wrong with the argument? So uh, just in the context of his response, I should point out I have actually responded to uh, that argument uh, in writing in the blog post uh, that is called Cal Can Calvinist Determinists Trust Their Cognitive Faculties? Mm. And it quotes William Lane Craig's defense of that very argument. So if you're going to uh, say my position is refuted by this argument, now you could use a Google search to see if I didn't treat that very argument in writing. So okay. it, it's out there. Uh, but let's let's dive into the argument. So uh, the argument says that if determinism is true, uh, knowledge is impossible. But mm -hmm. in fact, knowledge is possible. Uh, therefore, determinism is false. Now, it's obvious which premise the Calvinist is going to dispute. It's premise one. Uh, if determinism is true, knowledge is impossible. The indeterminist must support that premise uh, with further premises that I accept, or the argument remains completely question begging. Um, so then, when the incompatibilist uh, is asking, so how do you know anything on determinism? Um, then the Calvinist can answer with a number of possible accounts of knowledge. You can be an internalist or an externalist. Uh, you can be a classical foundationalist. You can be a reformed epistemologist. Whatever floats your boat, none of these accounts have anything to say about whether determinism or indeterminism are true. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the Calvinist can describe the mechanism of deliberation, and it would go something like this. I, how, do I, how did I come to know X? Well, I used my God-given brain to consider the evidence and rationally think about the facts, and I concluded what I think is right. Now, Stratton may be tempted in response to say, ah, but all that was still determined. Right. But that's only a good retort if you already accept that determinism is incompatible with knowledge. So that's still begging the question. Okay. Now, doesn't Tim have a longer defense of the argument, right? There's more. He has a longer version of it. Yeah. So let, let's dive into the, some of that material. Yeah. All right. So let's take a look at it. Now, I just want to let people know, uh, whoever's listening, 
Um, please type in a question. We will be taking questions. We're covering three people today. Uh, we, uh, we're, uh, uh, Guillaume is covering Tim presently right now. We're going to be covering uh, Dr. Braxton Hunter from Trinity Radio and then Leighton Flowers. Um, so in between each, um, I'm going to try to get a couple of questions where um, Guillaume will be able to interact with some of, of some of your questions. And I think Leighton uh, is watching. And uh, he asked a really good question that I'm very much interested in, and I'm sure you're interested in as well. I think many criticisms of your work, and it's not so much a criticism, but it, it is um, something that people still say, okay, this is all well and good, but where's the biblical support for compatibilism? And so maybe we could address that um, shortly when we go through uh, some of the questions and things like that. I think that's important. Obviously, we want to be biblical, not merely just talk about the philosophical ramifications and all these implications and things like that. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can get um, uh, we can get uh, get to that at some point. But let's let's take a look at, at Tim's longer um, uh, argument here. Uh, premise one, okay? If naturalism is true, the immaterial human soul does not exist. Premise two, if the soul does not exist, libertarian free will does not exist. Three, if libertarian free will does not exist, rationality and knowledge do not exist. Four, rationality and knowledge exist. Five, therefore libertarian free will exists. Six, therefore the soul exists. Seven, therefore naturalism is false. And eight, the best explanation for the existence of the soul is God. And he says premise three is synonymous with if all things are causally determined, then all, uh, you know, then that includes all thoughts and beliefs. Okay, so it's a bit of a longer version, I think, that he aims to uh, to offer this argument against atheism. Uh, mm -hmm. But the, the section that is really relevant to debates with Calvinists is premises three, four, and five, mm -hmm. uh, where you have, if libertarian free will does not exist, rationality and knowledge do not exist. That's premise three. Then premise four is rationality and knowledge exist. Uh, premise four, which I said the Calvinist is going to uh, accept and affirm. And therefore, libertarian free will exist, which is the conclusion that Calvinists deny. So let's just focus on those three, four, five. And so you said uh, premise three, is, he says, is synonymous with if all things are causally determined, then that includes all thoughts and beliefs. Well, that's not at all synonymous. Uh, premise three is the big claim of the argument, which the Calvinist, of course, rejects. Uh, that's the, the conditional, if liberty and free will does not exist, rationality and knowledge do not exist. So that's the, the, the strong premise. That's the big claim that Calvinists reject. And uh, whereas the sentence, if all things are causally determined, then that includes all thoughts and beliefs, that's utterly obvious, right? It's just a claim that all things are determined if determinism is true. Um, so you may claim that one entails the other, and I'll disagree, and the argument will be immediately question-begging, but you can cert you certainly cannot claim that they're synonymous. Uh, that's demonstrably not the case. Mm. Well, he goes on to say, he says, uh, if our thoughts and beliefs are forced upon us and we couldn't have chosen better beliefs, then we're left assuming that our determined beliefs are good, let alone true. Therefore, we can never rationally affirm that our beliefs really are the inference to the best explanation. We could only assume it. Knowledge is defined as justified true belief. And if you don't have warrant or justification, then it's not knowledge. If one cannot freely infer the best explanation, then one has no justification that their belief really is the best explanation. Without justification, knowledge goes down the drain. All we are left with is question begging assumptions, a logical fallacy. How would you respond yeah, to that? Yeah, so so this is there's a couple of blunders there, and I want to uh, okay. proceed a bit 
cautiously, I'm a, I'm a philosopher of free will, not an epistemologist. But even with my layperson's uh, understanding of uh, the philosophy of knowledge, there's a couple of really strange statements here. Um, the um, first, he seems to say that all knowledge is inferred, right? So if one cannot fully infer the best explanation, then there's no justification, there's no knowledge. Well, it could well be that you have knowledge without inferences, right? Not all knowledge is the result of an inference uh, to the best explanation. Some of our knowledge is like that, but not all might not all of our knowledge. I mean, I don't infer that um, you know what my date of birth is. I don't infer that my wife loves me. I know those things more directly. This is not the result of an uh, empirical survey, and then I have an, an inference to the best explanation. But let, let's that, let's leave that completely aside. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the other thing that he says that's a really strange here is that he says we're left with question-begging assumptions, a logical fallacy. But that's that's not right. I mean, fallacies have to do with arguments, right? You beg the question only in a debate. Okay. Your beliefs don't beg the question, right? Okay. He's suggesting that we need arguments in support of all of our beliefs. If that's the case, that's obviously wrong. I mean, there's plenty, plenty of things that I know or that I at least believe rationally and with justification that I don't have any arguments for. And this is a very famous claim by Alvin Plantinga. All sorts of things are properly basic and you know them, but you don't have an argument in favor of it. So mm -hmm. the absence of argument is not the problem here that he's uh, trying to, to call out. But more generally, I think it seems clear his misconception comes from a desire to affirm the ability to think otherwise. So we're back to that idea that you need to have the ability. So this time it's not to do otherwise, it's to think otherwise, but it's the same concept he's trying to press against determinist mm -hmm. so, so, it, yeah, so he, he goes on to say here here's the point if one does not possess any ability to think otherwise at least some of the time then one is forced to affirm that a current thought cannot be otherwise even if it should be moreover if all thoughts cannot be otherwise then this includes evaluating and judging thoughts one has regarding their own thoughts and beliefs all of them rational deliberation becomes illusory and thus any so-called knowledge one supposedly gains via this this illusion of rational deliberation is also illusory yeah, so that we see that it's still playing on the equivocation between conditional and categorical abilities. Okay. Um, so I'm very happy to say that if you're coerced to affirm X, so that you will believe X no matter what your reasoning tells you, right? So then you would be lacking even the conditional ability to mm -hmm. believe otherwise, let's say. Then your belief in X is not warranted. Yeah, if, if what you believe is such, is determined to be such, no matter what your reasoning tells you, then this is not warranted. You don't have knowledge. But in the normal cases, God can determine you to believe X through all the right mechanisms of rational thinking and deliberating in a way that does not exclude rationality at all. So mm -hmm. it's in a way that you could have believed otherwise if, conditionally, if something had been different, namely the evidence. Mm -hmm. Right. So the key is that your cognitive faculties uh, are determined, but they're still reasons responsive. That's a key phrase that's coined by uh, Fisher and Raviza uh, about free will. They say that the mechanism, the mechanism of your decision making is reasons responsive. That is that it is determined, but it is such that if uh, that the reasons had been different, then you would have chosen differently. So it's responsive to reasons. 
So a very straightforward example, I come back home, I smell bread uh, coming from the kitchen, and I infer that my wife has made bread, which she does quite often, and it's delightful, and this is actually what we had for dinner. Um, I am determined to do that on Calvinism, mm -hmm. but through a cognitive function that is such that I would not have believed that my wife had cooked the bread if I had not smelled the bread. Mm -hmm. My belief could have been otherwise if the evidence had been otherwise. And now this is actually a point where I can turn on the heat on the, uh, the on the incompatibilist here, on the indeterminist, and say that this account I just gave is very straightforward. It's the opposite that is actually counterintuitive, where there's actually a charge that one's belief is arbitrary if it's not uh, molded by the evidence. That is that there's a charge of arbitrariness that can be leveled against the libertarian view. I smell the bread, but I freely choose to believe no one baked the bread. I don't think that's more rational as a mechanism, right? So on my view, the evidence molds your belief, it determines what you're going to do in a way that is still reasons responsive. But mm -hmm. if all the evidence being just the way it is, you say, well, I could just on a whim uh, believe otherwise, then it doesn't seem like you're really guided by the evidence. Right. Okay, so did you have? Did you want to finish a thought there? Uh, no, no, that's just about right. Let's proceed. Oh, okay, for for the for the uh, purposes of time, um, if I were to summarize, kind of just in a in a the popular way that is presented, hey, if determinism is true, how can we have knowledge about anything? Because everything we think we know, the entire reasoning process is is itself determined. So if if even if determinism was true, we're not in a position to know that determinism is true. How would you give a kind of a, a quick summary response to that, uh, just as I laid it out there? Yes. Um, so there's obviously a few concepts that, are, that were needed to explain before that, but sure. to put it in very quick fashion, one, we can say it's it's begging the question. That is that it's it's constantly repeating, if we're determined, why think that you can know? Well, there is no reason to think that determinism prevents you from knowing. So we need additional arguments. Otherwise, the argument is question begging. Mm -hmm. Second, it's equivocating on the sense of ability. If we're now uh, talking about the ability to believe otherwise, then the correct response is to say, even the determinist can say that you can believe otherwise if something had been different, namely the evidence, so your beliefs are determined, but they're actually following the evidence, which is really what's important in justification and rationality. Um, and then, so yeah, so there's this equivocation, there's the sense of ability, it's conditional. And then you can simply say that um, the, the your uh, cognitive faculties uh, can be determined through all the right mechanisms. Uh, it's not in spite of the deliberation, uh, that you're determined. Mm -hmm. So there's no dilemma between God determines you to believe X and you've assessed the evidence and concluded X. It's not either one or the other. It's actually one through the other. So it's two different levels of uh, explanation for the same thing, namely that you're determined to believe X, mm. but you're still justified because you've done this through all the right mechanisms. Okay. And again, this is a, this, we can go back and forth forever. People who disagree, there's going to be points and, and that's why it's important to, to hash these things out. And it's okay mm -hmm. to go back and forth through uh, people who agree and want to clarify and things like that. Now, for the purpose of time, I'm going to uh, move on to uh, some questions and then we're going to move on to, to Braxton Hunter uh, from Trinity Radio. Um, to interact with some of his uh, some of his stuff. So we have a couple of questions here. This is a, a a softball one. Okay, it's up there on the screen. Why do you think people reject Calvinism? That's kind of a subjective sort of thing because people can reject a position for all sorts of reasons. But why do you think? 
well, uh, it started with Adam. So he he disobeyed, and there went there was this dramatic dramatic consequence on all of us that we became sinners and we started to uh, act wrongly and believe wrongly. So I, I don't know why people reject Calvinism. Obviously, I know some of the arguments that are offered against it, and some of them have some teeth, right? So I think that um, people can be very strongly impressed by the merits of the arguments against Calvinism and say, well, it doesn't seem right, therefore I'm going to reject Calvinism. And in a sense, trying to avoid that is what I do with my book. And I take the best arguments against Calvinism and I explain mm -hmm. what I think is wrong with them. And hopefully that uh, encourages people to say, well, actually, no, there's no really strong reason to reject it. Mm. Okay. Now, um, this one's from, from Leighton Flowers. And if he's sleeping, someone wake him up. Okay. He's, he's asking, someone wake me up when they start talking about why compatibilism is theologically necessary based on scripture. And, you know, I appreciate that question very much. Um, and, of course, this, this very question or a comment, rather, can take an entire podcast episode because you're going to have to debate the various um, the various texts and how we understand that. Uh, how would you begin to, if Leighton was, was sitting here with you right now and asking, it's like, you know, uh, how is this, how is compatibilism theologically necessary based on scripture? How would you answer that? Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple of things to say here. Uh, the first one is that, well, I don't know if he's... Uh, telling me that I'm, I am putting him to sleep because I'm engaging in the <laughs> philosophy. I'm responding to philosophical arguments. I think it's fair play if I use philosophy to explain what's wrong with them. Um, but with respect to the, the Bible, I think the, the first thing also is to point out that um, we find ourselves in the exact doing the same, same exact exercise. That is that there is biblical data. There's a number of affirmations in there. None of them come out right and tell you uh, philosophically. Here is the deal. You know, God determines all things, or God leaves libertarian free will. Uh, there is no discussion of. Uh, incompatibilism, compatibilism, uh, determinism, indeterminism. None of those terms are used in the scriptures. So we both, libertarians and uh, compatibilists, we both find ourselves having to look at the text, figuring out how we take the statements, unpack their likely consequences in philosophical concepts, mm -hmm. and try to uh, coherently defend that this view is uh, reasonable, true, justified, you know, coherent, all of those good virtues of philosophical thesis. But there's not uh, something special that I'm currently doing by uh, going in all this philosophy. Both of us have to really do that. We take the biblical data and then we infer that there are con conclusions uh, on a philosophical level. So if I had to give a sketch, you know, like this is to try to humor him, what are some of the biblical things that are best explained or that uh, most likely entail compatibilism and determinism? There's a number of things. I mean, I, I don't think any of them is going to be groundbreaking for if he's uh, listened to any amounts of Calvinists uh, debating uh, those matters in the literature or online. Um, but, you know, personally, uh, let's say, Biblically, what does that look like? I would say that um, determinism is the best explanation of a number of texts that claim that God is actively controlling and bringing about the outcomes of all things, uh, good and evil, uh, in very explicit terms. And so I think that those texts are far better explained by the deterministic view. Mm. Uh, I believe that this is also the best explanation of all the text on election. So obviously, it's going to be a wide debate biblically on how best to interpret the doctrine of election and predestination. But these terms are in the Bible in very strong texts de de declaring that we are predestined and elected. Um, and I think that they are best explained by a 
deterministic account of uh, human free will. Um, I would say that uh, there's a couple of uh, philosophical arguments that find their premises in the biblical teachings. So uh, in my book, I defend two arguments that I've taken from uh, Martin Luther and Jonathan Edwards, which are fairly uh, fairly famous claims that uh, that so Martin Luther argues that uh, if uh, incompatibilism is true, so he doesn't use those terms, obviously, but he says that if moral responsibility requires the ability to do otherwise, then it means that you can live a fully sinless life and therefore that denies original sin. Um, so he's saying if you are actually obliged, morally obliged to live a sinless life, but you don't have the categorical ability to do that, then it shows that you don't have incompatibilism. This is what I try to impact. So obviously he does a sketch of that uh, in his writing Luther. I try to put precise and rigorous philosophical premises and to defend the argument. But I think that that's a philosophical argument that has a biblical premise, namely the fact that we are we ought to live a sinless life. We are morally demanded to do that. And yet we lack the categorical ability to do that because we are fallen sinners. And it's not just very hard to work ourselves to heaven. It's literally categorically impossible for us sinners to do that. So that a refutation of the principle of alternate possibility, which in turn refutes libertarianism and then the similar claim can be done with the teaching that god is praiseworthy even though he's impeccable so god does not have the categorical ability to sin uh, he cannot um, he, he cannot avoid being wonderfully righteous and yet he is praiseworthy for this righteousness of his so we have a, an independent refutation of the principle of alternate possibilities right there that I think refutes libertarianism and therefore supports the compatibilist thesis. Okay. And then obviously then there's the cheeky uh, claim that I put in the introduction of my book and in the title of it, really. Uh, it's the fact that the two main arguments against uh, determinism, the, against compatibilism, the main, the most famous ones are the fact that if we are determined, God cannot blame us or praise us for what we do. Mm -hmm. Right, that's the compatibilist debate. Yeah. And the second is that if he determines what we do, that includes our sin, and therefore that makes him inappropriately involved in evil. And what I point out is that those two main objections against Calvinism are the two very objections that are anticipated by Paul in Romans 9. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's also showing some philosophical credentials of the view that if you find yourself uh, objecting against it, with those two very specific arguments, you're in the camp of the guy that. Paul is rejecting. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that those are some of the biblical things that I think supports the philosophical views. But, you know, the libertarian really should be doing the same exercise. Tell us what are the texts that none of them speak of libertarianism, compatibilism or incompatibilism, but what are the teachings that you think support the philosophical view you affirm? And mm -hmm. then we obviously can then debate as to whether or not they support those views, mm -hmm. but then we can take those views and uh, assess their coherence in a philosophical level, and both of those things should happen. That's right. Well, good. And and of course, uh, Leighton is asking this question. So uh, everyone familiar with uh, with Leighton Flowers, Soteriology 101, he has a lot to say with regards to uh, Romans 9, uh, which we would obviously take issue with, but that's part of the discussion, right? Exactly. Um, right? And you, you, we do precisely what you just said, look at the text and then and take it from there. We'll take one more question before we move on to Braxton Hunter. Um, and this question comes from, uh, well, he's got a kind of a screen name there, I guess Cranman. I, I, I believe he was on uh, the unbelievable show with uh, with James White um, talking about a similar topic, I think. But here's what he asks. He says, First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse uh, 13, 
proves libertarian free will. Paul says every time uh, you no, it doesn't. <laughs> okay. Okay. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 proves libertarian free will. Paul says every time you sin, another option was available. Contra causal choice. So the Bible itself refutes determinism. Yes. So this is precisely trying to do what I just said should be tried to do to be done by the uh, the libertarian, right? To try to take text and say, well, it seems to teach something that supports libertarian free will. So what would I say about that text? Well, it says that there is another option available, namely you could have done otherwise. And we're back to that equivocation. What kind of ability is in view here? Is this a conditional sense of ability, or is this a categorical sense of ability? Mm -hmm. um, the text obviously doesn't tell you. And so it's perfectly fine for the Calvinist to say, yes, I do have the ability to do otherwise. If I wanted to, I would do otherwise, right? There's no gun on my uh, forehead uh, forcing me to choose against my will. Uh, mm -hmm. It's through my will. So no, obviously there's lots of philosophical questions, you know, is God's activity on your will uh, appropriately respecting your moral responsibility? Uh, are there manipulation style arguments that could be mounted against that view? All of those claims I deal in my book, but the text itself claiming that we have the ability to do otherwise doesn't tell you one bit whether it's one view or the other that is uh, refuted here. So I, I don't think that this text teaches liberty and free will. No. Okay. All right. Very good. All right. So um, you're doing you're doing great. Uh, I'm sure many things that you said people would take issue with, and that's just part of the discussion. But I hope uh, some of the things that you're saying. I'm offended is, if people disagree with me. I should. Uh, one well, yeah. Uh, just just a shout out to Tim um, because we're wrapping up uh, Tim now. If 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 you think he uh, that Guillaume is misrepresented, I would really love to get you guys together and host uh, an interaction between uh, the the two of you. I think that'd be very uh, fruitful, uh, given the fact that. At that case, you can clarify and say, "Hey, wait, that's not what I what I think." And and I think that would be a very um, uh, a great conversation to to have. Um, you guys are both uh, knowledgeable in the area and very respectful. So um, hopefully uh, we can get something like that um, going. If you haven't already, um, subscribe to the Revealed Apologetics YouTube channel if you like the content uh, so far and past videos and the current one you're you're now watching. Um, I greatly appreciate that, and I hope you guys are enjoying this conversation so far. Now, a lot of people are saying, "Well, man, that's so much time on Tim." Well. We're trying to do a, a ginormous uh, undertaking here, responding to three uh, very good thinkers, and they, they have arguments that require a little bit of interaction. So yeah, bear with me. Um, we're going to um, uh, start on with uh, Braxton Hunter now. And uh, Braxton is, is a good friend of mine. He's a, a sharp guy, an awesome apologist. You should definitely check out uh, the Trinity Radio uh, YouTube channel. Um, I believe there's a podcast as well. I need my Trinity radio fix when it comes to apologetics. And again, Braxton and uh, Jonathan Pritchett, they're classical apologists, but I love their stuff in the areas where I do, where I do agree. I find their material very helpful and useful. And so I really do encourage you guys. If, if you don't know about Trinity radio, you want to get yourself over to their YouTube channel, uh, push the subscribe button and check out their, uh, their material. Um, that being said, let, let's interact with uh, with Braxton Hunter's material. And I and I believe uh, you kind of gave a listen to one of his debates, did you not? Yes, yes. So this debate versus uh, Joe Mira or Myra, I don't know how you pronounce that. Uh, okay. But, uh, so I listened to that debate so we can go through his uh, his positive arguments together. Okay, so I'm just going to read a block of, of, of Braxton's statements and then you can interact with them there. We'll move along uh, rather quickly. Okay, mm -hmm. so here, here's what Braxton says. He says, Calvinism requires a redefinition of established terms and ideas leading to theological contradictions. The term free and all its der uh, derivatives must be redefined. 
The notion of freedom that we use every day is called libertarian freedom. This means that man is genuinely free to choose between two or more options. However, Calvinists understand God's foreordination and predetermining of all things to override man's freedom in such a way that what Calvinists mean when they say we are free is that man will do whatever his desires and influences dictate that he will do. But he is never able to make a genuinely free choice to do anything. This is known as compatibilism. And all consistent Calvinists who understand this recognize that they must be compatibilists. It means that man really isn't free. In fact, it's called soft determinism. He must do whatever his desires mandate, but his desires were determined for him. How would you respond to those statements by uh, Dr. Hunter? Yeah, so this is more definitions. Uh, so there's a great deal that's correct here. I mean, I agree that the Calvinist must be a compatibilist. I think that's the sensible position to take. And so you do affirm determinism. Yes, uh, it's not a dirty word, uh, but it is the, the Calvinist view. Uh, but there's a couple of problems in just the uh, definitions here. So the first thing is compatibilists don't claim that following one's strongest desire is a sufficient condition for free will. That's an important piece to catch. Um, when I speak of the conditional sense of ability to do otherwise, right, I could do otherwise if I wanted to. I say that that's necessary for moral responsibility. I do not say that it is sufficient for moral responsibility. Um, and one way to see that is because if you did affirm that, then your view would be, so the Calvinist view, uh, if they, they were affirming that, that would fall to what's called manipulation arguments. So there's a number of arguments about, so it's an argument by analogy that if you were manipulated, well, let's say a, a brain scientist was just putting electrodes in your brain and making you do something, uh, that's allegedly you're not morally responsible for that. But if you are finding yourself in this situation, then it is the case that you have the conditional ability to do otherwise, namely that you could have done otherwise if you had wanted to. But now you couldn't have wanted to because of the electrodes of the uh, mad scientist. But uh, with a, a manipulation case like this, um, you cannot say that he is morally responsible. Now, obviously, I think that the mad scientist and God are not relevantly analogous. So that, that's my response to the manipulation arguments. But we can see that it's not sufficient to affirm that you have the conditional ability to do otherwise. That's not a sufficient condition for moral responsibility. But obviously it doesn't follow that therefore you should have the categorical sense of ability. I'm just saying that the conditional sense in itself is not sufficient. You need other caveats in order to affirm more responsibility. So that's just a, a, a very important piece to point out. We don't say that following one's strongest desire is a sufficient condition for free will. Mm. We claim it's necessary. Okay. Uh, and then uh, the other piece that's problematic in his definition is that he says that uh, it's at at the expense of genuinely free choices. That it, it, and it's not it's not just his incompatibilist criticism here. It seems to be in the definition. But no, the compatibilist will not say that this is not genuinely free choices. We affirm free choices that are determined. We affirm compatibilism. So that's just a couple of remarks on the definitions itself, but I don't think we're too far off. So, mm. okay. And definitions again is, is important. And without definitions, you lose, you, you, you talk past each other. So yeah, that's very important. Good reminder um, for us to keep in mind. Now he continues. Uh, Dr. Hunter says evil is according to the will of God and the Calvinist position, right? The Holocaust, a child molested, it's according to the will of God. Every aborted child, every case of cancer, every traffic accident, uh, he, he kind of lifts to kind of some premises here. He says, uh, one, if Calvinism is true, then sin is the will of God. Two, 
but sin isn't the will of God. Three, therefore, Calvinism must be problematic. How would you respond to that? Uh, I guess a deductive argument, right? He's kind yeah. of okay. Yeah, so it's, it's a deductive argument. Uh, the the first thing that I want to point out is that there's a couple of affirmations in there that are actually self-refuting. Um, okay. When he talks about uh, aborted child, okay, that means that the abortionist and maybe the the parents of the children have free will and have their libertarian free will on his view. But when he complains about every case of cancer or every traffic accident, there's no free will involved in those, right? A, a, a cancer cell does not have free will. I mean, an automobile does not have libertarian free will. So neither of those two things actually matter with respect to the debate between Calvinists and non-Calvinists. So if uh, you can blame God for uh, can the cases of cancer and traffic accidents um, on Calvinism, then equally so on libertarianism. So I think that those cases need to be taken out. I believe that Jerry Walls also in his writings uh, complains about God causing car accidents, uh, but the automobile doesn't have libertarian free will, so that's irrelevant in the debate between libertarians and uh, compatibilists. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the second piece and how I would more fundamentally respond to the, uh, the, the deductive argument here uh, is that it's equivocating on the will of God. That is that uh, there's two different things that philosophers and theologians have called the will of God. Uh, this is quite standard. I'm sure that uh, it's not new for many of your listeners. There is the uh, prescriptive will of God, which is what God says he um, commands us to do. That's what he, on some degree, desires that we do. He tells us, do this, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, do not commit adultery, do not murder. Uh, those are commands, and that's the prescriptive will of God. And then there is the decretive will of God, which on Calvinism is the one that is always done. That is that it's the decree, it's the ultimate will of God that is going to come about at uh, all the time. And mm -hmm. so... Uh, here, there's clearly an equivocation between premise one and premise two. If okay. Calvinism is true, then sin is the will of God. Well, which one is it? It's the decretive will of God, yes. But sin isn't the will of God. This is the one that is prescriptive. That is that that's in that sense that it's not the will of God. So the Calvinist doesn't find himself caught by this uh, that by this deductive argument. He affirms that premise one and premise two are both true, but in different senses of the will of God. So the argument is mm -hmm. committing an equivocation. Now, can I jump in real quick? And yeah, I think I, the point. So, so sure, sure. Uh, Braxton kind of t typed in. I, I know I, I wanted to let you finish first, but um, I was thinking this too when you're talking about cars don't have libertarian free will. But I was thinking, but surely the driver has libertarian yes. free will. Right. So how would you, if someone were to say, well, what about the driver? How, how does that affect what you just said with regards to? Yes. So a couple of ways. So um, if the driver is making a wrong choice, right? So he's uh, making the wrong choice to actually uh, like turn turn around or cut somebody off, or and then that causes the, the car accident, then yes, that is a, uh, that is a relevant case. Okay. Um, but uh, first of all, that that would be in the risk taking, right? But he's not actually making the decision to get into a car accident. He's just making a decision at best to drive recklessly. Um, but also the uh, car accident example. Uh, so I, maybe Braxton doesn't go there. Um, mm -hmm. But um, the uh, example that Jerry Walls is using with the car accident is that he says that the brakes didn't function, right? So the brakes were jammed on the car. Well, surely that is not the fruit of liberty and free choices. It's just the decay of the pieces, the design that was simply getting old and the car is just breaking down and that's just dysfunctioning. So there's no liberty and free will involved in that. Uh, so if Braxton is more 
careful in what he meant with the car accident, automobile accident, and he's just talking about the reckless driver who's making a free choice to do something wrong, then yes, that can be, that's no longer self-defeating. Now, I think it's still missing the, uh, that's still falling prey to the equivocation on the will of God for the same argument, but at least it's not self-refuting. However, the uh, the case of the cancer cells, those are self-refuting because the cancer cells don't have liberty and free will. Right, so right. The, that uh, a, even if libertarian free will is true, even if incompatibilism is true, so let's imagine that Calvinism is entirely false and you just have the libertarian incompatibilist view, um, God can still uh, heal or prevent cancer. Right, Cancer mm -hmm. is not defying God's providence by being indeterministic in some fashion. Mm -hmm. So God is fully sovereign over that and you need to explain it just as much as the Calvinist does. Okay. How about how about this one? Uh, Braxton says on Calvinism, God loves the elect, not everyone, unless you redefine love. Now, even just at a surface reading of uh, of that comment, it almost sounds like there's a question begging assumption in that. Uh, how would you tease that out a little bit if you think there is a question begging assumption when he says something to the effect that you have to redefine love, just like they often say, you know, well, Calvinists believe in free will, but you have to redefine freedom, which almost seems to beg the question in favor of their specific understanding. Yeah, a little bit like that. Uh, I think that charitably you can interpret that by saying something like, I think, uh, was that, yeah, I think that was the opening by Braxton where uh, yes. he said you have to redefine free or redefine free will. I think the charitable interpretation of that is to say it's the um, majority view, it's the common view or the view of the folks on the street that uh, that you are not determined or that you know this is what love means. And so the, when you have to redefine it, they say, well, you know, you have to deny what seems to be the common sense view. Mm. Now, I'm I actually don't think that this is the common sense view. I don't know that people really have thought about determinism or indeterminism. I think if you just ask them, well, do you need the ability to do otherwise? There's still the big fat equivocation on what kind of ability we're talking about. So then they will say, yes, we need the ability to do otherwise. You can't write them down as libertarians here because there's still this equivocation. Mm -hmm. uh, with respect to love, um, I don't know. Let's let's not focus on the idea of redefining it, but let's look at what argument we are being given here. They say that uh, on Calvinism, God loves the elect, not everyone. But in fact, you should affirm that God loves everyone because he's maximally great. That's actually the uh, omni argument from Tim Stratton that we skipped earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. It's being addressed here by saying uh, if um, we don't have libertarian free will, then libertarianism is not the reason why God finds himself uh, not sending uh, everyone to heaven. Uh, but then we cannot say that God loves everybody if he doesn't do that. So the um, quick response to that, I would say that uh, this is making love into a binary thing, which it is not. That is that if uh, God, you know, God loves the elect or he doesn't love them, um, love, there are complexities in love that even libertarians must admit. Um, okay. it, it obviously is not binary, right? So John was loved by Jesus. Uh, so if that's the case, it's pointless for us to know that he was loved by Jesus. Uh, but there's a special love that's affirmed in the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. In the same way that God loves Israel with a special love, God loved Jacob in the way that he didn't love Esau, uh, even if the, the Romans 9 text that uh, Esau I hated doesn't actually mean hate, but just love less, it still remains that there are degrees and different kinds of love. Mm -hmm. So yes, God doesn't have a saving love for the elect. Uh, he has an overriding purpose not to save them. Um, you, mean, but, you mean the reprobate? You said that he doesn't. Oh, have yeah, yeah. So yeah, for the reprobate, yeah. So so he has a saving love for the elect, and he doesn't have that saving love for the reprobate. And I think the Calvinists can affirm that. Okay. Uh, but it's not shocking to see different 
kinds of love and different degrees. Um, so, but but even then, you could say so the 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 libertarian is going to immediately retort well he loves them but he doesn't save them what kind of love is this uh he just doesn't want to save them um i would say that even the calvinist can affirm that god has some desire that they would be saved right um uh, but he has an overriding purpose not to save them right so you can say that that god has a mutually exclusive uh, desires mm -hmm. that uh, they're not compatible with one with another and yet he chooses one purpose is more important than another uh, in the exact same way that the libertarian is going to do with libertarian free will right because the libertarian says exactly the same concept same thing he's saying that god wishes everyone were saved he desires everyone was saved but there's something else that he desires more than saving everybody. He desires more to give them liberty and free will, mm. which now in turn entails that he cannot save everybody. So, so, so in both, the same parties, both parties have to affirm that God can desire one thing, but he has a higher purpose. Exactly. That's so, not just an excuse by the Calvinists, both sides. None whatsoever. You have to do that as a libertarian. Uh, so now the specific difficulty that's presented to the Calvinist here is that, well, then God means, it means that God has a, a higher purpose than saving everybody. And that higher purpose is not to give them liberty and free will. There's something else. And so the libertarian can rush in and say, well, then, you Calvinist, tell me what that purpose is. What is so important that he doesn't save everybody if it's not libertarian free will? Um, there's a couple of things that you can respond there. Um, mm -hmm. One is that uh, uh, there are some clues as to what that might be in Romans 9, right? So when God says, when the, the Bible says uh, that it's to demonstrate his power and to make known his righteousness, his wrath. So those things are to a degree addressing that same question but more generally the calvinist doesn't even have to tell you what the purpose is it's perfectly coherent to say um god wishes to do something but he doesn't do it because he has a greater purpose mm -hmm. and if i don't know what that purpose is it doesn't follow for a minute that uh, that purpose cannot be there and the reason why it should be obvious to the libertarian that this response is perfectly sensible is that that's exactly what they respond to the problem of evil against the atheist now so we'll deal deal with that in just a moment with Braxton's, Braxton Hunter's um, pressing of the argument from evil. But uh, you have to look at natural evil. That is, you know, whether it is an earthquake or a disease or, you know, the so-called cancer cells that we talked about earlier. Um, God is fully capable of healing the cancer, right? As we said, the cancer cells don't have liberty and free will. But so in the very strong sense, you want to say God desires to heal the cancer. But he has an overriding reason not to. And just because we don't know what that reason is, it doesn't follow that he doesn't have a reason. Right. And so if you don't accept that kind of reasoning with the, uh, the problem of the uh, reprobate, when the Calvinist says, God has a greater purpose, and I don't need to tell you what that is for me to be reasonable in saying that he does have a greater reason. More, morally sufficient. He has more Exactly. He has morally sufficient reasons to do that. Uh, I think he does tell us a little bit about that in Romans 9, but I don't even need to say that it's the full enchilada. I'm saying it's a part of the reason. Okay. But if you deny this kind of reasoning by punting to ignorance, saying God has a better reason, but I don't know what that is, then good luck when dealing with the problem of natural evil against the atheist, because that's exactly the same response you provide. All right, let's let's move a little let's move a little quickly here. Where uh, he says that Calvinism fails to explain God's judgment and actions in Scripture. So Braxton says, um, since Scripture so frequently gives the impression that man is not only free but responsible, it seems to support some version of libertarian and not compatibilistic freedom. 
If this were not the case, then a number of biblical passages become awkward. Genesis 6, God is found disappointed and grieved at man's wickedness. Does that sound to you like a God who planned and ordained all the events of the earth beforehand? It doesn't to me. Jeremiah says, I did not command and it did not enter into my mind. That's a one. That's one that you hear often. I'm not saying God isn't omniscient, Braxton says, but it doesn't sound like a God who ordained these things. How would you respond to that? Yeah, so he's, he's clearly prefacing and saying, I'm not saying it's that God is not omniscient, but it doesn't sound like a God who ordained these things. Right, but it doesn't sound either like a God who foreknew these things. So what do we do? Um, and on Molinism, it's important to say that he not just foreknows them, right? So because Braxton is a Molinist. So on his view, God selected a world in which he knew that would happen. Mm -hmm. So I guess it entered into his mind for that. Um, so the, the text here clearly must be taken differently. Uh, and I don't think that the libertarian has a advantage there if he affirms uh, knowledge of counterfactuals and Molinism the way that uh, Braxton Hunter does. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe we can take a couple of more of the scriptures he, he brings into that same line of reasoning. And I'll give you a more general response to the, the claim here. Okay, Braxton uses Jeremiah 36.3, says, Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Perhaps, Braxton says, God says, is he just playing games with them? Perhaps means that there is a genuine possibility involved. So what's going on there? Uh, well, so here again, I want to just press that same claim against his view because perhaps read in that strongly literal sense until the outcome is not known, right? So if you know for sure it will rain, you don't say perhaps it will not rain. Mm -hmm. So um, you, you can't press that strong so strongly because it refutes your own view here. And then with respect to the genuine possibility involved, once again, uh, the possibility to do something else, the possibility that something else happens can perfectly be seen as conditional rather than mm -hmm. categorical. And so it doesn't really arbitrate between Calvinism and non-Calvinism. Would, would you say then that we'd have to be careful with words like perhaps if we're going to push it too um, literally, then we're giving kind of ammunition to the open theist. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Right. And obviously Braxton rejects open theism. From, yeah. And um, rightly from, so. And I, right. you know, props right. for that. Uh, good. <laughs> good. That's right. So he also says Acts 1730 says that all men everywhere are to repent. God, he, God is here angry and grieved and punishing men. When Calvinists say that man could not choose God, this contradicts God's nature, in my view. That's what yeah. Braxton says. Yeah, yeah. So this one and, and many of the preceding uh, scriptures that he's quoted really try to um, bring home the fact that uh, God commands people to do something and he uh, really blames them for failing to do it. Uh, and that presupposes that they had the ability to do that. Sorry. So um, he's really presupposing the principle of alternate possibilities here. Mm -hmm. um, and we've already discussed that. There's the equivocation on conditional versus categorical abilities. And then that very same principle, as I've said, is refuted by the two arguments that I've defended in my writing. Uh, the fact that uh, a fallen sinner uh, is still expected to live a sinless life. Um, and then there's the praiseworthiness of an impeccable God. So a fallen sinner does not have the categorical ability to live a sinless life. And God is impeccable, but he's praiseworthy for acting righteously rather than acting unrighteously. So mm -hmm. those two things refute the principle of alternate possibilities that Braxton is trying to press here with those scriptures. Okay. All right. He also says that Calvinism fails to adequately address atheistic arguments from evil. And then he lists four possible responses to the problem of evil, which include uh, character building, heaven will render earth a veil of tears, 
Uh, he says the Calvinist response, people in hell glorify God because he can exercise judgment. And then he says, my view, libertarian free will. Uh, and then he presents a theodicy there. It says the first three still place God as the author of evil. God acts in opposition to his own nature and is the direct cause of evil in this world. Without libertarian free will, the free will answer is not available. Um, yes, I agree with that. So I agree that without libertarian free will, the free will answer is not available to respond to the problem of evil. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then he says, well, he says the cash value of this is that without belief in some form of libertarian free will, the free will answer is not available. If the free will answer is not available, then Calvinists are left with no adequate answer to atheistic arguments from evil. Yeah, so I think here the first conditional is true and the second one is false. So, yes, uh, the cash value of this is that without belief in some form of libertarian free will, the free will answer is not available. Mm -hmm. So that's true. And the second one is if free will is not available, then Calvinists are left with no adequate answer to uh, the atheistic arguments from evil. No, that's false. We are not left without an adequate answer. We give the exact same response that you give to natural evil. Uh, mm -hmm. God has sufficient reasons for evil and good purposes or good intentions, right? With the classic uh, Genesis 50 text, you know, what you meant for evil, uh, God meant sure. for good. So um, we're saying that God has sufficient reasons for evil and he has good purposes and good intentions uh, in bringing it about. And it's important to note that, um, so Braxton, Braxton here is saying liberty and free will is his theodicy. It's not just a defense. Uh, that's an interesting, uh, so st strong claim to make because a theodicy is an account of how you think that God, why do you think God actually allows evil in this world? Right. You know, evil happens because, and then fill in the blank. That's a theodicy, as opposed to just a defense, which uh, Alvin Plantinga draws the distinction between those two. Plantinga says a defense is just an account of what could possibly be the case to show that evil and God are not incompatible. To say, here's a possible reason that he could allow this, to show that if that's reason, if that reason were true, then the two would be uh, compatible and true. So we show that the, the evil and God are not incompatible by saying this, but we're not committed to saying that's the reason. Mm -hmm. We're just saying that's a possible coherent reason. So here, uh, Braxton is not saying that free will is his defense. He's saying it's his theodicy. So he's saying, this is the reason why God allows evil. So now he needs to be careful. I don't know if he takes it this far or if, you know, if it's just a quick statement in a debate. I don't want to okay. press, press too much. But he needs to be careful that liberty and free will does not explain all evil, even on his view. Right? There's actually a great deal of suffering and evil that happen in this world that is not immediately explainable by liberty and free will. So all of the natural evil, the earthquakes, the diseases, all of those things happen fully deterministically. And God, even on his view, could fully prevent them without uh, stepping on anybody's free will. Mm -hmm. So he needs to also affirm what I say is the case on Calvinism, namely God has sufficient reasons, morally sufficient reasons for the evil that he allows. And uh, obviously we rarely know what those reasons are, but I don't think that the uh, libertarian knows much more than us. Yes, he has one resource we don't have. He could say some of it is caused by libertarian free will, but we're certainly not left without an end, a response when we don't have that one, because mm -hmm. for the overwhelming majority, I would say at least a great deal of evil, we give exactly the same answer. So we simply take it to everything, saying all the evil that happens, God has morally sufficient reasons, and we rarely know the reasons, but obviously it doesn't follow that they don't exist.
Okay. All right. Well, we're going to uh, move a little bit uh, quickly here as we don't want to go too uh, far past. Uh, hopefully, we'll just get a little under two hours. We'll see. I I anticipated that this would be a big, nice, chunky uh, episode that people can go back and, and listen to. And uh, I already see in the comments there are people who uh, it was some of the comments by, uh, Layton and, and Tim that th there's some misunderstanding there, but that's okay. That's going to happen, um, as they're not here to explain and expand on their position, which they are more than welcome to at a later point. We could, we could organize that. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm looking for a question here. Uh, uh I think, uh, I think Layton asked it with regards to the decree and causality. I'm trying to find it cause it might've been all the way up here. Because there's a lot of comments here, that which is good. And I'm glad everyone's uh... okay. So let me just find the, the the most recent one that he put here. I think it's a good one too. Oh, he says, "Does the decree cause?" He says, "Does the decree cause what is decreed?" Does the decree cause what is decreed? So I'm inclined to be fine with that and saying yes. But the problem I have is that the uh, understanding of cause. Um, cause is a very complex word philosophically mm -hmm. uh, there's lots of different ways that this can be unpacked so i, I fully agree with uh, peter van inwagen who says that uh, causality is a morass in which i re i refuse to step foot unless i am pushed <laughs> and so um, affirming causality to me is not uh, well it's I don't think it's guilty so uh, that's why I'm, not, I'm saying i don't think i have a problem with saying that that yes god causes in some sense everything that comes to happen it decrees and it is causally determined mm -hmm. uh, but i don't think that speaking of causality is adding much to what i'm saying so i am affirming okay. determinism right this is as strong as it gets and i don't think mm -hmm. that speaking of causality is is much different what I, where i'm careful here is that sometimes people think of causing as something that is completely immediate or, or that is somehow um, agreeing that there's a transfer of blameworthiness, which I obviously mm -hmm. deny. So God causes that causes us to do some evil things. Well, is that causing action something that uh, transfers the blameworthiness? I obviously deny it. Uh, so this is my qualms with the word cause. But mm. obviously that question is just a yes or no. So I don't know if he's then uh, eager to take my yes and to use it as a premise in an argument that says, well, if he says yes to this, now here's why it's a problem. I don't know where that goes, but uh, this is my two cents on uh, causality. I, I don't love the word, it's too ambiguous. And so I follow Peter Van Inwagen in saying, I'm not even getting there unless I am pushed. Okay, oh, well, Leighton continues here. He says, uh, with regards to God might have sufficient reasons for allowing something. He says, sufficient reason to allow freedom is much different than God causally determining moral evil. Yeah, obviously that's the case. But uh, what I'm saying is that you affirm exactly the same thing uh, about everything that doesn't include more uh, libertarian free will, right? So you're talking about n natural evil, you know, earthquakes, twisters, uh, uh, everything that uh, does not involve immediately liberty and free choices, there's a great deal of suffering that happens uh, and that you cannot plausibly blame on liberty and free choices. And you would respond to that. So if you find yourself debating the atheist about those evils, you would say exactly what I affirm of everything, including our free evil choices. Mm -hmm. I would say God is uh, controlling all of that. He's sovereign over all of that, but he has morally sufficient reasons to 
desire this, to bring about this. To, you could use the language of permission. I have a great chapter in my book about whether that's compatible for a Calvinist to speak of permission, but that's another story. But really, the uh, non-Calvinist non, the non affirms exactly that. You know, when uh, in 2004, there's the uh, Asian tsunami with hundreds of thousands of people instantly dead uh, by a big wave that God could have perfectly well stopped. So uh, there was no liberty and free will in the wave. You know, the wave was not uh, rebelling against its creator. There was really just a natural process that resulted in hundreds of thousands of people dead. Um, so what does uh, Leighton and any libertarian respond to an atheist who says, well, God is evil because there is that thing? You would say, no, God had morally sufficient reasons to permit that wave. And while I don't know what those reasons are, it doesn't follow that God is evil for that. And I say exactly the same thing for all uh, evil that happens, moral and non-moral. Okay, good. One more question, and then we're moving on to Leighton Flowers, which is our, our he is our last uh, gentleman to critique. Uh, here's a question from Vincent. He says, could God have chosen to create a world in which these libertarian free will choices are different? Uh, well, I guess that's a question for a libertarian, right? So these libertarian free will choices are different than they in fact are. So that's presupposing that they are in fact libertarian in this world. So it's not something I affirm. So I'm going to have a hard time telling you what uh, would be the case otherwise. Um, so I, I guess it's a question for a libertarian. Okay. All right. Um, all right. So let's move on to Leighton Flowers. Guys, I, I again, I'm gonna, I am say this before. I anticipated that this would be uh, a long uh, episode. And of course, I'm sure Leighton and others might want to break it up and find the timestamps there and respond to various portions. And that's and that's fine. And that's welcomed as long as we're having a uh, respectful interaction and, and learning um, and getting closer to the truth and communicating with clarity. I think those are, are good things. Now, uh, let's begin here. So we're going to be, uh, well, Guillaume is going to be responding to uh, some of the comments of Leighton's, uh, Leighton Flowers' comments with regards to a debate he did against two Calvinists. Is this correct? Yeah, that's right. And maybe as an opening, I should uh, extend uh, uh, props to Leighton because uh, that debate that I watched, uh, so it was a two-on-two -two debate right, against two Calvinists. Um, I, I was facepalming uh, for most of the debates, uh, the two individuals that represented the Calvinist view were just just horrible. I mean, <laughs> they, they, they came out swinging, saying, no, this is heresy. Uh, you guys are not even our brothers in Christ. And I, I was shaking my head. So uh, props to Leighton for facing that. Uh, that's not the kind of argument or that the kind of view that you would uh, uh, see from me. But yeah, right. that was it was okay. quite bad. So that was the debate with Leighton Flowers and Jonathan Pritchett. And I think that was, uh, they were debating Sonny Hernandez and Theodore Zakiarides. I keep, I keep yeah, messing up his last yeah, name. Okay. All right. Yeah, so I'm um, sorry, but that was just, yeah, very bad opposition. But uh, I mean, there was still the opening, opening statements. Uh, that, okay. Uh, okay. So, so Leighton tried to make the point that the Bible teaches that we make choices. And that's obviously an important issue with regards to uh, the nature of choices and, and the different debates between, you know, uh, compatibilism and libertarianism. Uh, and um, you would, of course, agree that the Bible teaches that we make choices. There's no there's no argument there. No, that's right. So he, he said this, um, all throughout the scriptures, we see the concept of choice. Uh, as my colleague pointed out, it's sometimes called liberty and free will. 
but the word choice is really all we need here. You look in Webster's, the ability to select between available options. You don't need a philosophy degree to get this. It's very simple. You have a choice to make. We see choice throughout all the scriptures. So here, no, the word choice isn't all you need. Uh, the, yes, obviously the Bible speaks of choice all over the place. And the Calvinists will say, well, yes, and amen. Uh, not only we make choices, we affirm that we make free choices. So we agree on all of that. Where we disagree is whether or not that's compatible with determinism. Mm -hmm. So um, the the affirm you know the, the Calvinists also affirm that very definition from the Webster's. You know we mm -hmm. select between available options. Mm -hmm. It's obviously what happens when you have the conditional ability to do otherwise. You choose something, and you could have chosen something else if you had desired to do something else. Um, okay. So that's really so. So all of the affirmations of choice really don't discriminate one way or the other between determinism right. and determinism. So the argument typically is from the from the libertarian that uh, on Calvinism, you make a choice, mm -hmm. but you really couldn't choose otherwise, and mm -hmm. so you really didn't have a choice. Yeah. And at that point, you would make the the distinction between the categorical ability and the conditional ability. That's right. And that the Calvinist has the conditional ability and the conditional ability is sufficient for moral responsibility while the, I'm sorry. Okay. So that, did, I, did I mix it up? Okay. It's, it's necessary. Necessary, but, uh, not sufficient. Okay. We're saying the other one is not necessary. I gotcha. Okay. But we're not committing ourselves to saying what's necessary because that's actually another question. It's a really difficult one. Like if you have to say, here are all the conditions for somebody to be morally responsible, mm -hmm. that's really difficult to stress. And there are all okay. sorts of philosophers on both sides are trying to do that. And you can always find some sort of corner case, a weird situation that refutes it. And it's like, ah, what am I missing? So I don't, <laughs> I don't try to do that exercise. So I don't claim I know what is sufficient for moral responsibility. Okay. I'm saying that more uh, that the condition ability is necessary and that's the categorical ability is not necessary and that's all i need to claim okay Leighton uh continues he says from the very beginning in the garden we see god finish creating mankind in his own image and god declared that it was very good god made man good and mysteriously that couple chose to sin that's free will he could have resisted the temptation but he chose to rebel that's libertarian free will Choice is not only seen in the garden, it's also seen throughout all the prophets. Isaiah 118, for one example, says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. In other words, this is soteriological. He says, though they are red like crimson, they will be made like wool. If you consent and obey, you will be blessed. You will eat of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. There is uh, he points out choice. Deuteronomy 30, as Jonathan just mentioned, I, well, he's, this is a quote from the debate, uh, Jonathan Pritchett, that is, just mentioned, I set before you life and death, blessing and curses, choose life, an emphasis there. God says, Ezekiel says, cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed by making yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Why would you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Joshua called out to the people saying, choose you this day whom you will serve. And Jesus, of course, he came along saying, whosoever believes will not perish, but have everlasting life. He goes on to say, come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The apostle Paul continues this message by saying in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Choice is implicit in each of these and so many more passages throughout the entire Bible. 
Yes. Yeah. Uh, amen to all of that. Choice, choice, choice. Yes. Okay. Uh, and none of this is relevant because choice doesn't tell you whether that's compatible or incompatible with determinism. Okay. So, so he's just pointing out something that we all right, agree and right. just thinking yeah, but, that... But this is the... this is the Sorry to interrupt you. So this is the exercise sorry. we were discussing earlier in response to Leighton's very question. That is mm -hmm. that he's taking some biblical text and then trying to draw the inference to the philosophical view that he thinks is supported by them. And I'm simply responding, no, it's a non sequitur. Yes, all those choices are affirmed that there's the commandment you need to choose this, but obviously nothing follows about whether or not they're determined or not. That's a separate philosophical question that's not addressed here. So now would you say the question of libertarian freedom or compatibilist freedom mm -hmm. or compatibilist view, scripturally speaking, is underdeterminative? And no, so, yeah, no. uh, okay. And so we take the scriptures and then we have to draw philosophical implications to see which best fits. I mean, what, what, what do you, well, the, the second thing you said, yes, the first one I said, I said, no. So okay. uh, I don't think it's underdeterminative because I do think that the Bible tells us enough that we can know. Okay. Uh, I think that there are, there is enough teaching in the Bible that we can conclude that in fact, the determinist compatibilist view is correct. I think that Calvinism is entailed by the biblical teaching. Uh, but the second thing you said, I, I forgot the exact wording you used, but uh, I agreed with, which is that you need to take the biblical text and then you need to assess, okay, which one best explains it. But that's also, that's really asking, okay, does it support positively one? Does it entail one philosophically? And I think it does. Yes, I, mm. I do think so. And I try to give a sketch of how I would go about doing that connection earlier by mentioning a couple of the biblical teachings and philosophical arguments with premises in the Bible that mm. I think supports uh, the compatibilist uh, determinist view. All right. So Leighton also presents an argument from the Lord's Prayer, right? Basically, why pray, let your will be done if God's will is always done? So the argument is the Calvinist believes God's will is always done because his will cannot be thwarted, right? Mm -hmm. So then why pray, let let you know, let your will be done. He says, free will choice is defending the holiness and goodness and the character of our God. And this is why the Lord instructed his followers to pray for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. A prayer that makes little sense if indeed God is already meticulously controlling all that happens on earth by some quote unquote sovereign decree never mentioned in the pages of scripture. So, so let me not comment on the decree, whether it's mentioned or not. Um, but uh, let's let's touch on that question of the the will of God and why pray, let your will be done if your will sure. is always done. So the first thing to point out is that you find exactly the equivocation I mentioned earlier between the two kinds of wills of God. There's a decretive will of God and a prescriptive will of God here. And so when you pray, let your will be done. When the Calvinist prays, let your will be done. When when the Calvinist Jesus prays, uh, let your will be done. Uh, and he has the beard and everything. I know, <laughs> exactly. So see, with the quarantine, I don't shave, so I look extra Calvinist tonight. That's uh, right, that's right. So, so when the Calvinist prays, let your will be done, which will is he asking about? He's asking okay. about uh, your prescriptive will. Let that will come to pass you know mm -hmm. when you you tell us to love each other you tell us you know you you prescribe the good to us bring about that good that's the kind of prayer we're talking about no the south the bringing about is the decretive will and that's the one that is always done but the prescriptive will that we're asking bring that one about this one is not always done so it's mm -hmm. it's not uh, inconsistent to say bring about that one as if it always happened no matter what we do uh, mm -hmm. So that's the first piece I would respond. But the second is that the objection is actually self-defeating now. So okay. 
if the libertarian is trying to press this against Calvinism, he's using places in which there are some states of affairs that go against God's will only because he cannot determine it to be otherwise. Right? That's where we would disagree. Are there such things? So the libertarian says there are, and he's using them in this prayer to um, press us against uh, our own view. And he says, with those states of affairs that God cannot determine otherwise because we have liberty and free will, and therefore his will is not done, right? that's what mm -hmm. the uh, claim is, uh, then I'm going to say, of all people, why ask God to do anything when you think that he cannot do anything about that? Right, so if that state of affairs is such that God doesn't get his will because humans have liberty and free will and they're doing the wrong thing and God cannot determine that they do otherwise without removing their free will. Right? Mm. He cannot determine that this they would do otherwise. Um, then why would the other person ask God to do something about that when we are in the same breath saying that he cannot do anything about that? Mm. Of all the people to ask do something you know let your will be done it's an odd thing to pray if you're if you're convinced that his will is not done because he cannot bring it about mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it's literally self-defeating so it makes much more sense to see it as the calvinist who has those two senses here of the will of god in view and you're asking him to bring about sovereignly something that he prescribed so you're asking him to align his will of decree to his will of prescription you see, bring about what you commanded. You know, I think that Augustine is famous for praying this, I give what you command and command what you will. Right. So this is exactly what we're talking about here. He's saying, bring about what you prescribe. And, we're, and we pray this confidently as Calvinists because precisely because we know that he can. He has the ability to bring about his prescriptions. Now, obviously, he doesn't always do that because he has morally sufficient reasons to not uh, agree to our prayer here, but that prayer is perfectly consistent. And if the non-Calvinist presses it as an argument against Calvinism, it's self-defeating because he's asking God to change something that he says God cannot change. Mm. All right. That's all. That's a, great. And now, there's a lot of stuff to cover here. I, I think I'm going to fast forward. You were going to address Leighton Flowers' five reasons for leaving Calvinism. Um, and just in brief summary, uh, I think you expressed that even if you were to grant the reasons, that doesn't warrant that Calvinism is false, right? Can you kind of briefly summarize that? And then I want to spend the yeah. rest of the time um, uh, to kind of take some shotgun questions um, from the side there so we can get some of the people who are listening in, uh, get their comments. Yeah, so so this is, uh, I've listened to uh, Leighton Flowers uh, talk, uh, which I think he gave on a couple of occasions. So it seems to be a fairly standard uh, expression of why he uh, ceased being a Calvinist, why he left Calvinism. And he calls mm -hmm. it the five points out of Calvinism. And um, I guess we don't really have time to get into them in detail now, but uh, um, what I found interesting about that presentation is that every single one of those, so all five points, even if true, okay. are, are not reasons to think that Calvinism is false. Okay. That's, re that's remarkable, given as an account of why you ceased believing it, all five of them, even if true, are not arguments against Calvinism. At most, if they're successful, and obviously I disagree with much of that, um, if they're successful, they're simply undercutting some arguments, some positive arguments in favor of Calvinism. 
But obviously, all those reasons, all those arguments could fail to establish Calvinism and still being the case that Calvinism is true and supported by all sorts of other reasons. Right. So that was just uh, that that fell short, that that account of why he left Calvinism fell short of giving a reason to leave Calvinism. It just, Mm -hmm. at most, it gave reasons to maybe stop, uh, you know, no longer affirm those arguments mm-hmm. in favor of Calvinism, but which still maybe well could be true. So yeah. uh, we're running out of time. So maybe on another occasion, we can go into the details of those five, which obviously have called for much additional comments. Right. But that's my general, uh, that's my general feedback here. Yeah. Well, where you tried to set out something very ambitious where you covered three, three people. <laughs> and of course, there's so much more to be said and, and clarification and responses and things like that. So um, we're just kind of wetting, uh, wetting the whistle, so to speak, for people who might be interested to look into this more in detail. Um, So let's take some questions here. Um, I'll throw in some of my own and then uh, take a couple here uh, in the comments. Someone uh, said, uh, question, please interact with source libertarianism. Why don't you define that? And uh, are there there any issues with source libertarianism? Yes. So source libertarianism um, is it's a style of libertarianism um, that focuses less on the ability to do otherwise. Right. So we've seen that the, a core claim of uh, the libertarian view was um, I've described as uh, the, the principle of alternate possibility. That's a very famous argument against Calvinism, against determinism. And that's the claim that uh, in order to be free, you need the categorical ability to do otherwise. The source libertarians or the source incompatibilists are saying it's not so much a matter of being able to choose otherwise. It's a matter of being the ultimate source of your own free decisions. Mm-hmm. So it's it's no longer f- focusing too much on the uh, categorical ability to do otherwise, but it's saying uh, you need to be such that your choice is not determined by sources that uh, are antecedent or that are, that go outside of you. And obviously, that would be the case for human beings on Calvinism. You know, our choices go back to God's providential control of our choices. Um, and so the source libertarian says. This is really what matters, not the ability to do otherwise. It's the fact that you're uh, ultimately determined by things that uh, you're not the ultimate source of your choices. So Mm. can I interact with that? Yes, uh, and I have. Um, If folks want to uh, read that, that there's a big chunk in my book that deals with source uh, incompatibilism. We don't really speak of source libertarianism so much. It's more the source incompatibilism. But yes, that's a libertarian view. a couple of quick comments here. Uh, the first one is that I offer an argument for why if um, indeterminism is true, then, so indeterminism, no matter how you slice it, requires the presence of alternate possibilities. Hmm. And so if more responsibility and free will require indeterminism, as is affirmed by even the source incompatibilist, then like it or not, they are committed to affirming a principle of alternate possibilities. So that's my claim here. And therefore, that means that source incompatibilism is also refuted by my refutation of the principle of alternate possibilities. And I would very straightforwardly go like this. Source incompatibilism entails the principle of alternate possibilities, whether they like it or not. And I show how that follows. (laughs) But in fact, principle of alternate possibilities is false. Therefore, source incompatibilism is false as Mm. well. Uh, If you want to really get technical in those, and I suspect that the questioner is uh, familiar with the concept and technical because you you don't know about source incompatibilism (laughs) if you've not read (laughs) a a good deal like that, and you want to see really how those positions are hashed out, uh, I recommend that you read my response to Kevin Timpey's review of my book. So my book is, excuse me, sinner and blaming God. Uh, the philosopher Kevin Timp 
has uh, written a review in uh, um, Faith and Philosophy, the journal, uh, and uh, I've responded then to his uh, uh, review on my blog. So if you look just for Guillaume Bignon and Kevin Timpey, you will find my response. And there, uh, between his critique of my book and my response to his review, um, you will see a lot of, of the comments that are relevant to source incompatibilism, its mm. relationship to the principle of alternate possibilities, and how I would go about refuting uh, source incompatibilism. All right, very good. We're going to move quickly here. So here's yeah. another question. Yeah, what would you... Hard. That, hey, you're, you're doing you're, fast, you're doing really good. No, you're doing great. Um, what would you say to the statement? There is no difference between hard determinism and compatibilism. Well, if it's supposed to be a matter of definition, then that statement is demonstrably wrong. That is, that mm -hmm. uh, determinism, uh, like soft determinism, is compatibilism, and hard determinism uh, claims that um, incompatibilism is true. So the the compatibilist says that determinism and moral responsibilities are compatible. And the hard determinist says that moral responsibility and determinism are incompatible. So a hard determinist is somebody who says we are determined and therefore we don't have free will. Whereas the compatibilist says we are, well, at least the soft the soft determinist says we are determined and we it is compatible with moral responsibility. So there's a big difference. One says we have free will and moral responsibility. The other one says we don't. So obviously there's a big difference here at the level of definition. Now, obviously this person is probably pressing this as a claim to say, well, no, because if you both affirm determinism, then you're both committed to saying there is no moral responsibility and free will. Fine, that's what he says, I disagree. So there's clearly a difference here and the debate is at the center of the compatibility question. Hmm. Here's a question from Tim Stratton. He says, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. He says, Eli, can you offer my specific mad scientist thought experiment? Are you familiar with the mad scientist thought experiment? Tim, you have to stop claiming arguments that are not yours. Mad scientist, this is a basic, uh, compatible, it's, a, it's a manipulation argument, it's completely middle of the road. I don't know if you've come up with some groundbreaking version of the manipulation argument, okay. but this is standard fare in the manipulation literature. So mad scientists, uh, there's uh, love potions, uh, you, you have the yeah, with the electrodes in your brain, uh, you have the, so in the literature, in the philosophical literature, you have the so-called four case argument. Uh, it's a manipulation argument by Dirk Periboom. Um, there is just very standard. So I don't know if you know of a specific version that you want to throw at me. Yeah, I, do, does, I do I deal with the, um, I, I do deal with manipulation saying. arguments on my, in my book. So, yeah, I do think he says he has a specific one. So I'm not yeah. aware of that specific one. And that's, that's, uh, we, we, we can see that, but if you're interested in, I mean, obviously I think that Tim has read my, uh, my book and he's, he's interacted with it. So you see my manipulation argument in there. Right. Um, that's, you, that's all I can say you, for now. Now, would you be okay? Uh, he actually messaged me the argument. <laughs> so if you if you don't, I've asked people if they're okay that we're going, uh, you know, uh, a little bit long, and people seem to be okay. And I, I don't want to overstep uh, the time that you have, but um, if people are enjoying these questions, I I don't mind going a little bit longer if you don't mind. But that's completely up to you. Okay. I mean, addressing a long manipulation argument like this might be a bit hard just uh, off the cuff and very quickly. I'm okay. happy to attempt a succinct response to a brand new argument I haven't heard. But if it's a mad scientist manipulation type argument, it's 
quite straightforward. So, uh, I mean, it's it's what I'm saying is this is the kind of manipulation argument that I treat in my book. But let's see if there's something original <laughs> I haven't seen. So, so, so I, I asked the people, I asked the folks if they were okay with going long. People were like, we're okay. Okay. Please, they want to read Tim's argument. Want me to read yeah. Tim's argument? I'm going to do it. And of course, I don't know if it's sarcastic, but uh... keeping that in mind, uh, believe believe it or not, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this sort of stuff that goes on uh, online. People really do enjoy these kinds of conversations. Um, it's super, super interesting for folks. So um, I'm going to read uh, what Tim sent me here. Uh, he says, Bignon complains. Stop complaining, Bignon. What's wrong, what's wrong with you? Uh, Bignon complains. I'm French. I can't help it. <laughs> That's it's not, right. not my free will. It's just being French. I will complain. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Okay. So he says, Bignon complains that I haven't really dealt with his response to the consequent argument. However, the reason why I include it is because it leaves us with the following summary. Quote, if determinism is true, then all of our thoughts and following actions are ultimately the consequences of God's will and acts of causation. But it is not up to us what God wills or what he has caused. Therefore, the consequences of these things, including our own thoughts and actions, are not up to us. They are up to God. He continues, and then there's a question, so I need to set it up. With that in mind, if that's a bad summary or not, suppose a mad scientist exhaustively controls, causally determines, all of Bignon's thoughts and beliefs all the time. This includes exactly what Bignon thinks of and about and exactly how Bignon thinks of and about it. All of Bignon's thoughts about his beliefs and all of Bignon's beliefs about his thoughts are caused and determined by the mad scientist. Yes, we get it. Determinism this, is true. This, is also, this also includes the next words that will come out of Bignon's mouth. So here's a question. How can you not the mad scientist, rationally affirm the current beliefs in his head as good, bad, better, the best, true, or probably true. Note the range of options from which to choose. That's his question. Okay, so I, I stand corrected. It's not a manipulation argument here. It's just uh, trying to, because the manipulation arguments in the literature are, again, trying to support incompatibilism. So there are arguments that, that claim that if God determines what we do, it's relevantly analogous to someone else, like a mad scientist, or determining everything that we choose. And since we are saying that the, in the case of the mad scientist determining what we choose, presumably we're not morally responsible, in the same way, when God does the determining, then we should also affirm that we're not morally responsible. That's the standard manipulation arguments with mad scientists and love potions and that type of a thing. Um, that's not what he's claiming here. He's trying to uh, salvage his uh, free thinking arguments by saying that we cannot have knowledge if we are determined. And so he's trying to now describe a mad scientist uh, determining all of our thoughts and claiming, well, how could you claim to know anything if the mad scientist is the one who determines every thought in your mind? And my response, believe it or not, is going to be the exact same one as if it were God. Um, so obviously, I there's, there's a wide avenue to claim, well, God is not relevantly analogous to the mad scientist here. But without even going there, yeah, the argument, argument is still half-baked. The mad scientist determines all of your beliefs. How could you claim to know anything? Well, it depends how the mad scientist determines all of my beliefs. If the mad scientist is just, just shoving beliefs in my brain, independent of any sort of proper mechanism to acquire those beliefs based upon the evidence, based upon proper perception, then yeah, sure enough, I cannot know any such thing. But if he determines me by using proper mechanism that 
do track the evidence, then that's not a reason to think my cognitive faculties are not reliable to track the truth. So how can I tr claim, uh, I don't necessarily claim until you tell me what kinds of determination the math scientist has in view, but certainly if you now try to take that and bring it to the analogous, an allegedly analogous situation where God determines my beliefs, then th here that obviously doesn't carry over. God does on Calvinism determine my beliefs, at least in the majority of cases, by simply bringing about my beliefs through the proper mechanisms of my reasoning and cognitive faculties. Mm -hmm. So there's no successful argument here to press that somehow that undermines knowledge. Okay, very good. That wasn't that bad. That wasn't bad from the top of your head. Okay, I have a question. Uh, this is for myself. And so mm -hmm. I'm going to ask it. And I know that other people have asked uh, as well. So I'll post it up there. Does God have free will? If so, what kind of free will does God have? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. So uh, does God have free will in the very uh, agnostic sense that I've defined free will at the beginning of this uh, conversation? Uh, it's obvious that a, uh, a Christian in his right mind is going to affirm yes, right? If it's the control condition for moral responsibility, then God has free will. He's free in the actions that he uh, performs. He is morally responsible for them. He is praiseworthy for what he does. You know, praise God for he is good. Uh, he does uh, all good all the time. Um, if so, what kind? Uh, so what kind, I suppose it's the same question, libertarianism, compatibilism, determinism. Um, here, I don't really feel comfortable declaring too much there. Um, I think that there are some very strong disanalogies between our will and God's will, um, in the sense that he is at least um, to some extent outside of time. So you might affirm God is timeless or without creation and then you know, gets in time uh, with creation, or you might say he's always timeless. Um, whichever view you do, there are some difficult concepts here so that when we talk about what possibly could determine God's will, we're not dealing with uh, factors that precede it in time. Uh, so there, there are a, a bit of complexities there that incline me to be somewhat cautious when I start to talk about God's free will. So here are some of the things that I'm prepared to say. One, uh, he does have free will, he is praiseworthy, and he definitely controls enough his actions that he is morally praiseworthy for them. Um, two, I do think that uh, his free will, um, in conjunction with the fact that he is impeccable, mm -hmm. successfully refutes the principle of alternate possibilities. Okay. Um, so I think that uh, is bringing in God here works. Uh, we can see that there's a being, God, who is praiseworthy for acting righteously, even though we maintain that it's categorically impossible for him to act unrighteously. Mm. So I think that that's the import of God there um, as to whether... Uh, God is in some fashion determined uh, in similar fashion. Uh, I don't know for a fact that he is determined in all things. Um, I do think that we want to say when some, some action is better than another and and also there might be the question of how many of those better options are there? Like, is there an infinity of good things, uh, each of them getting better? Uh, th that gets into very thorny philosophical questions. But uh, when there are good options and bad options, God cannot given who he is, pick the bad options. So that's a limitation that I think you can press into an argument against the principle of alternate possibilities. But uh, whether God is fully determined uh, in, light, in that light, I don't know. Uh, and 
if I were to say he's fully determined, is there anything bad that follows from that? Right? Mm -hmm. there, there, sometimes we speak of moral collapse to say that well, if God is determined, then all of the this, all of the actual state of affairs that he brings about were determined as well. So all is necessary. You have moral collapse. Um, I don't see anything that's incoherent as a result of that, but yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's seen in a bad light. So I'm I'm a bit cautious about what I affirm there or not. I'm not too sure, uh, but I'm open to uh, arguments sure. one way or the other. All right. Out of respect for your time, uh, there's going to be one more question and then we'll wrap things up. And uh, two hours and five minutes so far, that is, I, I, I think you did an excellent job summarizing. Again, this will be a lot of good food for thought for people to go back and listen to. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd really do appreciate that. I'm just going to give you one last question from Leighton and it's in regards to uh, the mad scientist. He says, suppose the mad scientist used the same mechanisms that God does, and then answer the question with regards to the mad scientist. Does that make any difference? Well, yeah. And the answer is yes, I would know. And you still need to give me an argument for why I should believe that those mechanisms that God and the scientists are using, which are, I remind you, using my uh, brain that has been designed to acquire true belief, to weigh the evidence and draw some reasonable conclusions, all of that, why would that be undermined by knowing that this is determined? You know, it's molded by the evidence. It's the opposite view that is that strikes me as undermining warrant because now you have to say that given all of those evidence, given all the reason, the proper reasoning of it, you can just freely choose to disregard it. Mm. So um, if God, if the mad scientist using the exact same mechanism as God does, then that mechanism is proper. It's the proper properly functioning cognitive faculties to use uh, verbatim plantinga language. Uh, it's the proper function of your cognitive faculties. That's knowledge. And so if there's an argument to think that somehow determinism removes that warrant, I haven't heard it. Mm. All right. Um, I am. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. I was impressed, and you, like I said before, your accent uh, makes you sound very smart. Your book is pretty impressed, but I, I actually am. I'm impressed that you were able to cover three individuals. Of course, there's so much more that we can cover, but um, I guarantee people are gonna find this uh, useful and helpful, whether they agree or or disagree. Um, I say this from the bottom of my heart as a brother. Thank you so much for giving me your time. Uh, I don't just do these things for people who are interested. I, I do these things and I try to invite people on that um, that I think can provide good answers to questions that I that I ask. And so I'm going, I, yes, I'm that guy who goes back and listens to his old episodes <laughs> to, to make sure I, I, I can process everything good. Uh, and things like that. So. And perhaps let me say a, a kind uh, word in, in conclusion to all three of those uh, sure. gentlemen. Uh, it's been enjoyable to listen to their arguments. Uh, they, they defend them with passion. They clearly seem to genuinely believe uh, their view and they, they are passionate about defending the righteousness of God. And um you can tell they have a, a good heart. Uh, I'm criticizing their arguments, uh, but I thoroughly enjoy them and I wish them well. Uh, hopefully my interactions have helped them sort out some of their critiques and that will sharpen it and that would be positive for them as well. But uh, I certainly extend my uh, affection to them and uh, and I hopefully that uh, they don't uh, leak their wounds and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and well, that well. Uh, they can forgive me uh, while they put their stitches on their arguments. <laughs> 
<laughs> and re relax just in case uh people go crazy in the comments he's just messing around no, but, no. but um, um and then yeah and they also in some of the uh, material i've listened they also had some really kind things to say about my own work and my own uh, arguments right, so that right. was uh, also very kind of them yeah and unfortunately we couldn't cover everything because there was a section in which you respond to uh william lane craig's argument uh, as well, uh, the whole vertigo setting in. Yeah, and... yeah, but that's the same argument. I wanted to show right. that uh, I whatever William Lane Craig says is no more convincing than uh, what Tim Stratton says in his defense of the same argument. So okay, yeah. Um, well, the offer is on the table. If you're willing to do it, and Tim is willing to do that, I would love to get you guys both. Would you be willing to do that if if we can get if we could reel him in? Because I know you guys are busy. Would you be willing to to do a moderated discussion? Uh, so the, the in in practice in concept yes uh, it's going to be a matter of scheduling and finding the right uh, time for me so it, it sure. worked out tonight um, I'm trying to not do this too much with the kids and the wife uh, and the responsibilities of work but if we can work it out in the schedule yeah I have no objection in you know, obviously yes it's like there would there was no alternate voice here to be. Uh, Frame. That's so right. I, I successfully convinced and already convinced Calvinists. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe I can do better if uh, if you throw a, a live debater at me, and we'll see what happens. Sure. All right. Well, thank you so much, guys. If you've enjoyed this, uh, please uh, subscribe to the Revealed Apologetics uh, YouTube channel. Also, I will be taking this audio and transferring it into my Revealed Apologetics podcast episode, so you can download that on iTunes as well. And again, if you have any ideas for future guests to have on the show, please let me know. You could email me at revealedapologetics at gmail.com. And if you have any Bible questions, theology questions for me, you could email me as well. And I will make a response either via a response in your email or cover it as a topic in a future episode. Well, thank you so much, Guillaume. I really, really appreciate your time and uh, I wish you well. Hope we can do something again soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Eli. All right. God bless, brother. And God bless everyone else. Thank you so much for listening in. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you very much for listening to Revealed Apologetics. If you have any questions that you would like me to answer um, on one of our podcast episodes, please feel free to send in your question uh, at revealedapologetics at gmail.com.